This country is in deep trouble, people. This country is rotten to the core, and somebody better do something about it. I want you to take your hand out of that bowl of Fritos, throw away your National Enquirer, and pick up the phone. Go ahead, pick it up, hold it up to your face, and dial 555-T-A-L-K. Open your mouth and tell me what we're going to do about the mess this country's in. Talk radio. It's the last neighborhood in town. People just don't talk to each other anymore. This country is in deep trouble, people. This country is rotten to the core, and somebody better do something about it. I want you to take your hand out of that bowl of Fritos, throw away your National Enquirer, and pick up the phone. Go ahead, pick it up, hold it up to your face, and dial 555-T-A-L-K. Open your mouth and tell me what we're going to do about the mess this country's in. Talk radio. It's the last neighborhood in town. People just don't talk to each other anymore. Let's go to the first caller. Uh, Night Talk, Agnes. Yeah. I love Lucy. And why don't they make more of them? Those shows are ancient, Agnes. Lucy Obama must be at least 105 years old. The rest of the cast is dead. Gary <laughs> Metroid's going to be picking up the show starting Monday night. Link it to a national theme. We have a very special guest with us. Kent is the classic American youth, energetic and resourceful, spoiled, perverse, and disturbed. Would you say that's an accurate description, Kent? Barry, you should ask me if you want to have a guest on the show. Why? Because I'm the boss, Barry, that's why. All you have to do is just be nice, okay? Now, easy, Barry, you're part of the problem, you see. I don't care what you think! No one does! He's going down in flames, Dan. So what? You get the package I sent down to the station. See, if I were you, I'd have my pretty assistant give the police a call. Take the bomb squad about ten minutes to get down Bomb squad? Why, why, why should I call the bomb squad? Tell me something. I, I, I'm curious. How do you dial a phone with a straitjacket on? <laughs> Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words cause permanent damage. I chose that line from the film to introduce uh, today's uh, recording in lieu of the, the tagline, which is, he exists because you listen, uh, which is sort of equally sort of potent, I think. But, uh, you know, again, it's a bit like the line that you chose for a simple plan, Adi. I think it sums up the story quite well, sums up the themes, mm -hmm. the, harm, the harm that words can cause. Um, today's film that we're under discussion is, is Oliver Stone's talk radio from 1988, based upon the play by Eric Bogosian, who also stars in the film as, as shock jock. Barry Champlain. Um, I think we should move on to a round of introductions. Would you like to go first, AD? Uh, yes, fine. Uh, I'm Adrian Mills. Uh, I am the programme leader for the game design degrees at the University Centre Grimsby um, and have been, I don't know, watching these kind of films for most of my life, um, which probably explains a lot. Um, it so that, does that's indeed. Me. That's me. <laughs> Mark, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, my name's Mark Hall. Um, I graduated from the writing degree at Grimsby University Centre um, last year. Currently studying a PGCE um, there as well. Um, sort of a, you know, a, a little bit of a writer here and there when I can, when I'm not shouting at children or working or you know making posters and such. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> Do you like making posters, Mark? Um, no, um, but you know whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not, you throw yourself into it, don't you? <laughs> Who doesn't like making a good poster? <laughs> this, is a, this is an in joke, isn't it? I think we should. <laughs> Nobody will get that. I'm a teacher. I'm Paul Lewis. I'm, uh, I'm I'm a very naughty boy. I think I think that's what my wife would say. 
Um, <laughs> would not that's be wrong. That's, would not yeah, be wrong. She wouldn't be wrong. Um, not the Messiah. Uh, very yeah, naughty boy. I'm a very naughty boy. Uh, writer, lecturer, photographer, I don't know, whatever word you want to put it in. Human being. That's what I like to describe myself as. I'm a human doing. <laughs> I'll just get it I'm wrong. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, in terms of a synopsis, the, the film story, talk radio story, would anybody like to offer one? Um, so, let me see what I've got uh, written down. Um, the original one, I, I wrote, I wrote two. The original one um, was was a bit wrong because um, I was writing about you know the, the the life of this talk show radio host. Um, but then I accidentally realised I was writing about Frasier. Um, so then I went back and watched the film. Um, so what I've uh, got, let me just bring my little notes up. Uh, I only wrote a short one because in, in my mind it doesn't seem very much like a long film. Um, I think that's because the, the story time's condensed. It's two evenings. Yeah, it's really short, isn't it? It's only over a... a you know, possibly even a week, maybe, or even less. Um, so I do feel I've written... like saying, sorry, Mark, to interrupt you, I do feel yeah. like saying, I'm listening, in honour of the Frasier reference. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> At least someone is. <laughs> so, um, so I've put uh, a talk show uh, radio host, the notorious um, and, and famous for generally being rude, and not being afraid to say afraid to say whatever he wants, um, and he starts to receive some hate mail and abusive calls rega- regarding his uh, his Jewish faith, uh, which is something that he regularly pokes uh, fun at himself. Um, the prospect of uh, a national syndication for his show causes him to sabotage himself by riling his haters into such a frenzy that it leads to an Obi Wan Kenobi style death, where he is struck down and becomes more powerful than we could ever possibly have imagined. And um, the reason he sort of self-sabotages himself is it possibly stemmed from a few things. Maybe his fear that his haters are right about him. Um, the pressure of uh, sort of national fame and maybe a, a bit of a, a fear that the, the hate for him could spread nationwide rather than just over Dallas, where he, where currently everyone hates him. That's how I feel about Grimsby, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was quick, Mark. Well, yeah, thank you. Uh, AD, have you got one? Um, that's really similar, isn't it? So, you know, uh, American, American shock jock riles his audience to such a point that he reaps the inevitable rewards of his possibly hateful words, I guess. Um, in a nutshell, if you want something for that's the to box, that's <laughs> to the point. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have a go. Uh, we've got Shock Jock Barry Champlain, uh, played by Eric Bogosian, host of Dallas radio station, late night talking, uh, calling talk radio station uh, called Night Talk. And the evening that we first meet him, and that first night, that first recording goes on for about um, half an hour, doesn't it? That's just one evening's It is, yeah, yeah. That's, that's very. <laughs> you, you watch closely there, Mark. <laughs> I did, yeah. I was, I was shocked. I'm not shocked, but I was sort of really intrigued as to how long that opening sequence was. So I brought up the timer when it finished. Yeah, yeah. And the second evening is is of a similar length, isn't it? Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but we meet him on an evening where <clears throat> his producer Dan, played by Alec Baldwin, um, has arranged for a representative of, Met- of Metro Wave 
uh, who's kind of looking at the show for the prospects of advertising re- revenue if the show would go uh, national. Um, and this representative is played by Dietz, uh, uh, John, Ka- John Pankow, who plays a character called Dietz, sorry. Um, and the, looking at Champlain's show, Night Talk, with a prospect of, of, of making it a national show. Um, and then Champlain's life begins to unravel from that point uh, because he has to sort of battle the the, uh, the demands of the corporate world, if you like, and his own sense of who he is, I think, um, which also uh, involves <coughs> the uh, his lover at the studio, uh, Laura, played by Leslie Hope, and uh, a, 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 an attempt at sort of reconciliation with his ex-wife, Ellen, Ellen, played by Ellen Green. And uh, also input from a regular in Oliver Stone pictures, John C. McGinley, who plays Stu, the engineer, uh, which is a, a great part, I think. It's such a good part. Um, but yeah, and, and, and uh, Champlain's uh, tendency to antagonise his listeners escalates with a uh, sort of neo-Nazi group called The Order, um, who uh, begin by sending Champlain a, a dead rat in a shoebox and then escalate to murdering him at the end of the film. Um, and it's all very uplifting. <laughs> I, think. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, th- I think we could say, um, uh, in the sense that you, you can look at it and say, thank heavens that I'm not Barry Champlain. Um, so uh, what about first encounters with the film? Aidy, would you like to go first? Um, I, 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 had, I had watched this um previously uh but i remember very very little of it so um i i'm pretty sure i had seen it before um but i i, I can't remember when or where so i'm actually going to just come down and say for all intents and purposes this was like a fresh fresh watch so right. th- this was you know i watched it a couple of times and so this was um to me you know i knew what it was about and and i knew you know th- either I'd seen sections of it or whatever something I'm not sure but um to me this felt like the the, the full full first watch so you know um I, I don't I'm not sure I'm usually I'm a big Oliver Stone fan as we'll come to later um or, or Oliver Stone around this time anyway um so I, I I'm pretty sure I would have watched it I just don't remember when or where or how um so you know for all intents and purposes you know, this was probably my, you know, this is my first re- uh, encounter with the film that I actually remember. So, um, yeah, interesting one. Mark, um, yeah, this your first encounter with it. It is, yeah, it was. It's to, to be honest, when you mentioned that it's the film that we were going to be talking about, it's the first time I've ever heard of it. Um, so it's a, it's a fresh watch for me as well. Um, yeah, I, uh, me and the wife sat and watched it and uh, and enjoyed it thoroughly to be honest which i wasn't expecting from um the wife's point of view because i didn't really think it's gonna be her kind of thing but um but she was sort of milling around in the background and she was listening to the first sort of 10 or 15 minutes and then she just came and joined me because she said it sounded interesting um yeah uh, yeah it's, like i said it's first watch i was quite excited to see dr cox from scrubs in it mm. and um well, McGinley I, was a regular in in stone's films wasn't he in this, this yeah movie. Up till mm-hmm. was it born on the fourth of July, and then he sort of it broke off from um, Stone. Sorry, yeah, Matt. No, no, that's fine. But yeah, fresh watch for me. I, I mean, the wife asked me um, who she'd seen. Uh, you know, the, the main character in um, Eric Bogosian, um, and I got confused and said he was the main actor from um, Short Circuit. 
Um, oh, got to say, Steve. <laughs> yes, I, I, <laughs> I, I thought it was. She was like, "Who, who is that?" And I'm like, um, "That's the guy from Short Circuit, isn't it, Steve Gutenberg?" And then I, I looked. Up, were, oh no, no, it's not. <laughs> I, thought you, I thought you were going to say uh, the villain in Under Siege Two, which is <laughs> it's other big screen credits <laughs> <laughs> against Steven Seagal, and I'm doing the Steven Seagal, you know, martial artsy movements as we talk, but you can't yeah. see it. Anyway, um, so it has to be done when you went to Steven Seagal. You have to move your arms like a mad thing. Um, <laughs> so uh, I mean, in terms of my first encounters, I think I, I simply recall seeing this on VHS first. And I think I picked it up at a... Um, I was a big fan of Stone's work, like, like yourself, AD, at the time. Um, and I, I picked this up. It would it would have been sort of around about 1990, 1991, around about sort of after the Doors, born on the 4th of July. Um and I picked this up on VHS. It was the big box rental VHS, which you might not remember, Mark, being much younger than I said. I remember VHS. Do you remember that rental VHSs were in larger boxes, weren't they? Uh, yeah, I had tapes. You know what I mean? I'm sticking his back. He's about they all just discs and clouds when I was a lad. <laughs> And um, and then uh, I watched it then, and then re-watched it again via, it was shown on Movie Drome in 1994, which might have been when you saw it, AD, perhaps. Possibly, um, yeah. And that, that was, was four the, then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel old. Um, <laughs> uh, that was the fag end, I think, the Alex Cox era, and, and Cox delivered a, a, a typical Alex Cox intro, uh, delivering a rant against lim- limousine liberals in Hollywood who, who don't quite understand um, it's a, and it's a weird introduction. I've rewatched it recently, and I've got the movie drone box and, and, and read it, and I'm still not quite sure whether Cox is labelling Stone one of these limousine liberals, or he's labelling the, the, the sort of the, the, the Hollywood types that don't get Stone's work. I, I, I don't quite get it. Um, but it's got a lovely line about Kent, character played by Michael Wincott, that we'll probably talk about later. The Stoner that comes on, and and, and uh, much to the chagrin of everybody else, uh, Champlain introduced. Uh, sort of invites him into the studio. And uh, Cox refers to Kent, and he's, he's referencing some of Stone's previous work as well, particularly Salvador, um, which I, I think is an amazing film. Um, but he refers to Kent as, Cox this is, as a true freak, I'm quoting, on a par with the Salvadorian death squad leader in Salvador or the Brugelian conspirators in JFK. You rarely feel the director's sense of power that creatures such as Kent exist, which they do in profusion. <laughs> it's a wonderful description of Kent. Um, and Cox also suggested that the film was prophetic in the years since its release. He talks about Rush Limbaugh and, and Howard Stern becoming popular. But I'm sure, even when I watched that in 94, I'm sure Stern was a, a thing pre-talk radio, wasn't it? Stern's radio show. Um, I'm sure Stern was one of those sort of talk radio hosts that, 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 that existed before the, the, the film uh, the film was made. But anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure it was a bit earlier, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was the, that uh, the other the other film that this sometimes crosses over with is is Private Parts, isn't it? The the yeah. epic that came out in um, was that nine, mid to late nineties, ninety seven, something like that. I thought, um, you, I thought you were going to say uh, Good Morning Vietnam then. Oh well, there was Good Morning Vietnam, which is which is a damn good film. Barry Levinson's Good Morning Vietnam with Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, that is. I am yeah, I'm a big fan of that one actually. I do like that. Um, it was ninety seven yeah, Private Parts. Yeah, 97, I thought it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good morning, Vietnam. There's there were clear sort of parallels, I think, with that, actually. I'd forgotten about that for some reason. I've not seen that in years. I need to rewatch that. 
Um, so in terms of contemporary reviews, did anybody dig up anything about those? Um, just to, <coughs> sorry, just to uh, uh, you know, a quick. You brought up Howard Stern, um, and according to that bastion of research, Wikipedia, uh, he began a twenty-year run at WXRK in 1985. Had been doing DJing from seventy-six to eighty from seventy-six onwards. So he was pre this, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Around about the time that Bogosian wrote the play, eighty-five actually. Uh, yeah. So yeah, certainly pre the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The play. Uh, did anybody find any contemporary reviews or anything particularly interesting in any contemporary reviews? Um, contemporary? No, I, I had a look around. I couldn't really find much. I could find stuff from around the time. And, you know, you go looking for these things and a lot of links are now dead. Um, yeah. so, so that doesn't really help sort of thing. So I've just gone to our usual bastion of Metacritic. Yeah, that's <laughs> Which fine. is always good. Uh, Roger Ebert really liked it. You know, he, yes, he did. Yeah. 10, out, 10 out of 10. Um uh, you know, praising the virtuoso, <clears throat> unsettling closing monologue, um, in which we think the camera is circling Bogosian, and we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later, sort of thing. But yeah, so this, this it's a, it's got a, you know, I, I think it sort of falls down. It's a there's positives and negative reviews is what I found, I and mean, it's got an average of sixty six. If we want to, if you're talking averages, um, which don't always tell the uh, full story, do they? Um, no. But um, uh, no, it was, a, it was a bit tricky to find anything that was, you know, of a uh, anything contemporary. Did, did you? Did you find much? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, uh, the Chicago Tribune review by Dave Kerr at the time said the film overflows, and I'm quoting, overflows with Stone's personality, both to its credit and its detriment, which I think is quite interesting. Because um, Stone's kind of, I think he's one of those filmmakers that, particularly in that period of his career, probably still today, polarised uh, uh, audiences very much so. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Dave Kerr also says the film is, quote, another electrified existential sounding board for the ills of late 20th century America, which is a good description of Stone's work generally. Um, Kerr goes on to say, quote, as a director, Stone has a way of merging with the point of view of his protagonist, which is to say that his films are as jittery wide up and as fragmented as they are, which kind of goes back to you mentioned about the some of the camera work. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later. Uh, but Kerr also says there's no contemplative distance in Stone's work, no guiding structure and little real analysis, which is sort of a backhanded, backhanded form of praise in a way, because he, he lets the characters speak for themselves in some ways. Mm. And I think particularly with um, this picture, you get um, a character, uh, the Champlain character, that, that's presented ports and all, and, and, and he's, he's, he's very three-dimensional and rounded because of that, because he's not. It, it's quite unpleasant in some ways, but it's it's it's, it's quite sympathetic in others. There's a good um, from Empire Mark Cooper's review in Empire. Is a, I mean, this is a bit on Metacritic. They sort of there's a good line here where he says a riveting portrait of a complex man who, like Stone himself, struggles with being a favourite of the institutions he attempts to rebel against. I think that's yes, quite yeah. uh, that's that's pretty you know pretty on the nose. I think actually, it is. That's good. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've got that line written down as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the Abert review um, emphasised the connection with the Alan Berg story, the story of Alan Berg, which I don't know. Do you know anything about Alan Berg? Um, I knew that this was based on a, uh, a a DJ that, you know, that was that was uh, shot by a listener outside. So I knew there was some kind of parallel with a real life incident sort of thing, but I didn't look too far into it, no. Um, yeah, I mean, Berg uh, was a, a Jewish uh, talk show radio host. He was, he was, he was uh, murdered in... Uh, 82 or 84. 84. 84, wasn't it, by a neo-Nazi group called the Order who machine-gunned him with a, a Mac 10 
talking about overkill um uh, um, in, in, I think in his garden, I think as I recall, um, the, the, the play that Bergosian wrote wasn't written with um, Berg in mind, but when he rewrote the play for the film script, he revisited the play for the film script. He worked in these references to a book by Stephen Singler, who's a, a, a fellow that's written quite a lot of true crime books, called Talk to Death, The Life and Murder of Alan Berg, which was more about the, the neo-Nazi group, the order that, that, that executed, or assassinated, murdered Berg. Than it was about um, Berg himself, really, but uh, um, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Abe emphasises that connection with the Alan Berg story, and he says talk radio is directed by Stone with a claustrophobic intensity. And he get, I mean, we often talk about stagey films, and, and this is kind of stagey in the sense that there's limited scenes, limited settings, but I think I don't think it ever feels static. And I think because no. of some some of the things that you were saying, Adi, about the camera work, for instance. Um, and Abbott goes on to say, these days a lot of people are opposed to the newfound popularity of trash television, and no doubt they are right, and the hosts of these shows are shameless, shameless controversy mongers, but at least they are not intimidated. And he goes on to ask this question, of what use is freedom of speech to those who fear to, to offend? Which is quite an interesting question. It's sort of at the, at the back of my mind, because I don't know if you saw that video essay that I put on the, the Teams thing about um, the house with laughing windows, but, you know, the... the, the, the uh, that those questions of ethics in art, I think, are, are, are something that are at the foreground of my mind because of a few journal articles that I'm working on at the moment. Um, in the Los Angeles Times, Michael Wilmington says that Champlain's venom is universal, a rampage on an open mic. There's some mild remnants of 60s era progressive politics in there, anti-war, anti-bigotry, but it's gotten curdled with scorn and laced up with a sour hipster's contempt for soft-minded patsies and squares who won't rise up, which I think is kind of interesting because I think you can see that anti-establishment tone in 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 um, Champlain's rants um, and his positions, particularly with relation to Metrowave and and, uh, and and sort of the corporate sensibility, but on the other hand, he's is very regressive in some instances, and I think that that, that comes back to what we were saying earlier, and we'll come back to later about his hypocrisy as a character. I think. Wilmington says that as this transcription of Bogosian's theatre piece, the play on which it's based, talk radio is tense, packed and crackling with life. As a dramatic investigation into Alan Berg and his murder, it's shallow and dubious. But as a synthesis of those two disjointed halves into a volatile whole, a comic paranoid nightmare about media success, media misprejudice, and the pathological relationship between performers and their audience, the film is an often dazzling success. And the New York Times Review also says that as much as the the, 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 the text is about Barry, it's also about the time that produced him. He's not a mainstream character but his is the kind of arrogance that convinces frequently mindless listeners that they too ought to be heard, which indeed they can be on talk radio. The New York Times Review also goes on to criticise the photography, which I think is a bit wrong-headed, because I think the photography is one of the stellar aspects of the picture, really, uh, referring, <laughs> referring quite dryly to the uh, the 360-degree shot, which we'll probably talk about later, where the set seems to revolve around Barry and the camera. Um, they refer to that as a lazy Susan shot, and that's quotes, <laughs> which is really, really, really sort of mocking quite a before a moment in the film. They also criticise what they call the spongy flashbacks that were added into the, the film script that weren't in the play. But we'll, we'll talk about those a bit later. I think those mm. are essential, but that's something we'll talk about later. Matt, mm. did you dig, dig up anything that you'd like to sort of mention in the... In the I, yeah, I had a couple. Um, I think I read that same... New York Times article that you did by uh, Vincent Camby. Um, yeah. He calls it le uh, a mess of a movie. 
that comes complete with a conventional beginning, middle and end and long spongy flashbacks. Um, the bit that I find interesting, he said, um, in addition, they've grafted on uh, onto the play elements from the real life story of Alan Berg, um, of the, the Denver show host who was murdered in 84. Um, and and I, I don't know, like all, all, all sort of the way, for, I, I didn't know anything about Alan Berg before the film. And all sort of the way through, um, my wife who watched it with me, she was she was saying, you know, he's he's going to die, he's going to end up dead. And I was sort of, you know, well, let, no, let's just watch it and, and see, we'll we'll find out. And um, so I I don't know whether if it was that obvious, you know, sort of that his death was coming. Um, is, is it could it be, could it be possible that the the um, the way they've that Canby says they've grafted the elements onto onto the movie are maybe a little bit clumsy or but um but i don't know personally i without knowing the story of Alan Berg beforehand it did seem like a sort of like a natural conclusion um yeah. so um yeah I, yeah I, i'm not sure I, don't, I i think he's being a bit overly harsh maybe um i i think so yeah i think it was one of the few negative right Sort of mixed negative reviews that, that yeah, I couldn't find any like really bad ones apart from him. Um, Hal Hinson he said that um, Oliver Stone straight when he's talking about uh, sort of instances of, of of hate speech and bigotry and stuff, he's, um, he says Oliver Stone strains hard to make his points and in the process distorts and undermines them. Um, which again, I don't think is possibly it's probably that that true, you know. Um, I think there's a lot of uh. A lot of examples and, uh, and and of evidence that that kind of anti-Semitism, especially in racism, does exist in America. Um, and is that the sort of way to go regarding combating bigotry and hate speech? Is to show people, you know, how bad it can be. You know, the scene where he gets sent a Nazi flag and a a dead rat in a shoebox. Um, it may seem like it's a bit shoved down the viewer's throat, but you know, things like that have happened and do happen. So, well, I mean, I, I'll be honest. That story about the the dead rat in the shoe. When I revisited the film in the sort of late nineties, early two thousands, um, struck a chord with me because I had a, a friend that used to work in the, the job centre, and uh, they used to get quite at that time. They used to get quite a lot of threatening phone calls, mm. and there was an in- incident where he was um, in the office, uh, you know, on the front line, um, uh, the, the sort of the desks. I mean, you know, people are coming and urinate up the, up the, uh, the screen. The job there. trenches. Yeah, and uh, he was on the front lines there, and uh, and there was a, a phone call saying there's a bomb, and and, and it was a, a shoebox, and uh, it, when it was opened up, there was a dead rat inside, which you, you, you kind of... And that was a true story. Something happened to a friend of mine, sort of round about, it'd be 99, 2000, 2001, something like that. Yeah. And... Um, and uh, you know whether the person that did that was inspired by talk radio. I don't quite know, <laughs> but uh, I, I hope it wasn't. Uh, I hope it wasn't you, AD, <laughs> inspired by talk radio. No, um, no, <laughs> no it wasn't. not this time, not on this occasion. <laughs> but but th- but things like that do happen, and uh, do. and that was found... that was so, sorry sorry, Mark. No, so... I was going to say I found a lot of articles sort of. Um, sort of linking, the, you know, the, the film and the sort of the mod, what they call the modern era of Trumpism, you know, um, with his 
outspoken rants on Twitter before he was banned from it. Well, particularly um, the, the alt-right thing on, on um, you know, Alex Jones uh, and so on. I always get mixed up with Alex Jones on the one show. They are easy to confuse, I have to say. Yes. You know, one's a very leggy Welsh woman and the other one's a ranting American. But... Yeah. Um, well, you say that. But there was there was a few years ago. There was. Um... I will not hear disparaging comments about Alex Jones on the one show. No. <laughs> there was there was a few <laughs> years ago. There was um the the, the singer of a, a a rock band called Lost Prophets. His name was Ian Watkins, and he was put oh, yes, away yeah. for some for some very, sort of very horrific crimes. And unfortunately, one of the singers from Steps H, his name's also Ian Watkins, and he he, oh, got, a, he got a lot of hate on Twitter. Um, yeah, people yeah. really coming at him because they kept getting him mixed up with um, the, the the criminal. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's not so right. It just goes to show you how easy it is in yeah. staying age. And even back then, like it's easier now, I think, to to be horrible on the internet to people because they can't get to you. They don't know who you are, where you're from. Well, um, we have a word for it, don't we? Trolling these days. Yeah, and that word came up a lot when I was sort of looking into the film, um, but. In fact, I think someone referred to Champlain as sort of like the ultimate troll because you know he yeah. he he has his he has his format and he has his 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 spouting point where he can say what he wants and you know these people who do call in they they do benefit from anonymity, don't they? they yes. Um, yeah, yeah. I and, mean, and it's, it's there's a lot of parallels with how it is today. It's just instead of us ringing in and saying it. It's even easier now because we can just type it in on our keyboards or our phones and yeah, remain more, completely anonymous. I mean, one of the things that I mentioned a bit later in my notes is uh, the, the cacophony of voices, which is a phrase that I put down, which is you, you get at the end after um, uh, Champlain, and then he called him Bergen, after Champlain is murdered. And then there's a montage, an audio montage, isn't there, of, of people sort of delivering... Offhand eulogies, really. Listeners sort of yeah. call in to speak about the memories of him, and uh, it's such a, an overload of different voices. But a lot of those voices in the film are played by the same actors, aren't they? Playing two or three parts. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and, and that's deliberate because you get those voices become confused, and, and I think that's very, very much the case with the internet, where there's even less personality in, in someone's words, and you've, you've often only got an avatar, you know, on the screen or, or whatever. Um, you know, and, and uh, uh, the manner in which different viewpoints can overlap and intersect and become confused and become very, very toxic, I think, as well. Um, yeah. I think uh, with the internet, um, I think, the, you know, sorry, Mark. The internet today is personally for me the, the Moss Eisley Cantina, it's a hive of scum and villainy. Yes, well, yes. Is this the point where I get to sort of say what I think is my favourite line from the whole film when he's doing that monologue at the end? Um, you, you're welcome to AD if that's and if you want to it, it. It seems to sort of fit in here, sort of thing. I thought I might, I thought we'd, I might have brought it up in the discussion bit where we talk about the talk radio phenomenon and stuff, but it's where he says marvellous technology is at our disposal, and instead of reaching yeah. up to new heights, we're going to see how far down we can go, how deep into the muck we can immerse ourselves. And that that was the the, the single line from this film, sort of thing that I took away from it, um, yeah. in, in amongst all the, you know, the, the, the racism and the anti-Semitism and all that sort of thing, which I thought was a bit sort of typical stone of a ghost. And I thought, and, and for myself, you know, it's not something I'm hugely aware of. It's, it's not something that's affected my life. So I can only take, you know, I can sort of 
experienced that sort of you know from a from a distance but that line i thought was was particularly prescient of where we yes, find yeah. ourselves um in, in today sort of thing because you know you know marvelous technology is at our hands and you know the internet was dreamt of like to you know allow all people to you know do all things sort of thing and give you know freedom of the president and now look at it yeah yeah i mean I, I, many years ago many many years ago i applied for a, a job elsewhere and um, and uh, I uh, had to do a, 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 a taught session on Web 2.0 to students, and I was very very cynical. And I th I think you know the uh, the people that were observing thought, yeah, we don't want him talking about <laughs> digital, <laughs> digital culture to students because I was sort of saying, well, actually, it's it's really it's just an extension of what the, the web was for initially. Which is an extension of the radio, you know, and it's yeah, it's not it's not anything particularly new. The technology is new, but the 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 how it enables people to articulate themselves and how it brings out the worst in people isn't new. It, it's 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 you know it, it's just mm. amplified it, hasn't it? You know, creating more outlets. Yeah, I took a similar view actually in a very similar situation. I had an interview actually. I got the job though. This was for a a, t a teaching post many years ago. Um, and I likened, uh, I just paraphrased um, Marx's religion is the opiate of the masses, isn't yeah. And said that, yeah. and said that that's been now usurped, and the media is the opiate of the masses. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and yeah. they, they seem they seem to like that. I was like, oh, I don't know. So, I don't know. But it is this, more it's, sympathetic it's, listeners, I think, than I did. <laughs> maybe, yeah. I think I think they were just impressed that I was like, oh, Marx, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff. <laughs> you put in the door, mentioned Marx. Yeah, absolutely. What they didn't know is something I just looked on the internet the night before. God bless the internet. Um dangerous you go you go one step further and you mentioned Bakunin and you get a, a sort of a police escort out the door. Because <laughs> <laughs> they think you're an anarchist. Oh dear. Sorry, um, yeah, no, that's all right. But yeah, I think that's one of the obviously I, I don't know. That's my uh, that's my um Karl Marx anecdote for the week. <laughs> and everybody needs one of those. Everybody should do it. Good, isn't it? <laughs> now time for the Karl Marx anecdote of the week. <laughs> yeah. um, so in terms of production, did anybody dig up anything about the production? Do you know anything about the production? Or about, did you look at anything about the production? The um, I didn't know, to be honest. I didn't, I didn't manage to find that much on it. Um, um, just sort of like thinking about the, the the how it's how it seems and and it very much looks like even though it's a film it does still kind of look like it like a stage play a little bit doesn't it like you said with a limited amount of locations and and scenes and things and doesn't it but I mean it's stagey but I don't think when people use that word stagey to describe a film they, they often sort of refer to things that are very static and and it's stagey but in a good way. Yeah, I oh, know. I, I don't. I don't mean that as a criticism or a negative no, thing. No. I, I quite enjoyed the fact because um, it's it's refreshing to see something that's not been overworked. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And over 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 adapted or overproduced that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not a Michael Bay film. Oh, <laughs> explosions and giant robot testicles everywhere. Yeah. I've, I've crossed myself. Yeah, you can't see me doing it, but I'm crossing myself as I mentioned Michael Bay's name. We don't have him in this house. Yeah, well, although I did, before you joined, Adi, I did, I did sort of quote a line from The Rock, which I shall not quote. <laughs> but we were having a conversation 
Yeah. Mark said that. Mark said he was a bit nervous, but he was going to try his best. And I quoted the line from The Rock that I'm sure will be at the forefront of your mind as well uh, at the present moment. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what the line was, so I'm trying to think. There's too many good lines in The Rock. There's too many. The, the Clement Lafrené style line, which I'm sure was added by them, where Nicholas Cage says, I'm going to try my best. And, and Sean Oh, Cruz, yes. yes. Winners yes, always yes. whine about Losers always whine about their best. Winners said, go home. And do something very different. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I want to mean. That's the uh, the pre nine o'clock ITV watershed version. Yes, yeah. We just we just go home and have a cu- have a cup of tea and a slice of cake. Before recording, <laughs> it was the Channel Five version. <laughs> the um, Bravo version. Yeah, Bravo. Many oh, motors version. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, did you pick up anything about the uh, production? Uh, not much, no. I was surprised it actually took uh, just a little bit sort of thing. Filming was over uh, four weeks. Um, yeah, 25 uh, days specifically, wasn't it, I think? Yeah. Which, actually, I was. I thought it might have been shorter, actually, because, as we've said, sort of thing, there's, uh, you know, the, the, the main bulk of the film is in those two, you know, the, the opening sequence and the end sequence with those bits in the middle. Um, uh, apart from that, I couldn't really find much about the sort of making of it. Uh, so, no, um, it's not. I mean, what is what I should say about it's based on the stage play. It keeps its roots within that stage play to, I think, a degree sort of thing. I don't. Um, Alec Baldwin, not is Alec Baldwin, didn't like working with the, uh, you know, didn't like working Stone with all of them. Dictatorial, didn't he? Yeah, which sounds about right. It's what I'd expect. Yeah. Um, I didn't- so, no, you go, Paul, if you've got stuff. Yeah, I've got some stuff. I was going to say Bogosian had some interesting stuff. I, I saw an interview with Bogosian in New York magazine, I think it was at the time. Um, Bogosian had some interesting stories about Stone because he, 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 um, he, he sort of heard that Stone was quite fear, fear, fearless, fearful to work with. And um, he was a bit reticent and, uh, and, and, and he found that it was his worst fears realised because Stone was very demanding of him. And he, he sort of at one point he told him to redraft the script in quite a short period of time, and and uh, and Bogosian found that very sort of threatening and intimidating. But he, he, in some ways, in those interviews, he sort of he said that he, between the lines, he, he appreciated the challenge. Um, and Stone offered him some advice, which um, uh, looking at Bogosian's career over the next decade and sort of his appearance in that Steven Seagal film. Which I know I, I quite like it. I quite like Under Siege too, and I, I, I did show it to some students <laughs> as part of a Steven Seagal season. But um, but uh, you know uh, it's probably not the best <laughs> best film. Um, mm. But uh, Stone advised Bogosian after making Top Radio that they uh, he, he should he could either concentrate on writing or concentrate on acting. To do both was sort of diluted his talent uh, in some ways, and. Um, you know, Bogosian carried on on the stage, but he did concentrate on taking these kind of roles in, in films like Under Siege 2 and so in like the captain in, in Law and Order Criminal Intent in the 2000s and, and so on. Um, but uh, you know, in terms of the play, the play worked, no, the premise of it, uh, Bogosian at the time from the 70s was uh, uh mid to late 70s was a monologist and, and sort of uh, a, Stand-up comics is probably a, a too simplistic description of what he did because he was a provocateur, really, on the stage, like a punk stand-up comic, a bit more like Richard Pryor, I suppose, or somebody like that than, you know, like Bernard Manning. Oh, cross myself when I mention Bernard Manning again. Good Lord. Um, oh, dear me, what, what a name to mention. 
I do. It would be. I'm not going to say anything disparaging about better than money. Because you're going to say Jim Davidson next, and then I'm going to walk off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I shall be plain. Um, but uh, Bogosian, uh, the premise of the play worked in, its way into Bogosian's body of work, his stage act in '83, um, and this was in response to a conversation that Bogosian had had with uh, Ted Savinar, the artist who suggested Bogosian play a talk show, show host on stage and have characters call in from off stage. And this was something that Bogosian started playing with in '83. It evolved over a few years. And the original version of the play, which I've got next to me, I've got a copy of the play next to me, um, you know, just for, um, um, I've not read it for a few years, but the introduction is quite interesting. It's in the essential Bogosian. Um, the uh, original version of the finished play was performed in Portland, Oregon in 85. Um, but then in 87, uh, there was a performance in New York, New York where the play was extended. And I, I think the version I've got might be the New York text, but I'm not sure. It, it ends with that uh, moment in the film before the murder, where Stu says to Barry, he "says it's dead air, Barry," and, and the you know the the, the radio the mic's empty, isn't it? It's a coal mic, mm. and and then it shuffles on to the next um, program, which is Dr. Susan Fleming, a psychologist, I think, or something like that. Um, very different to the ending of the play, of course, uh, the film. Sorry, um, and in it was revived. The play was revived in 2007 for quite a celebrated run with uh, Liev Schreiber in the lead role. And some snippets of Schreiber playing uh, the uh, Champlain character online, which is quite interesting because he, he does play him in a slightly different way to Bogosian. Um, and Bogosian at that point had revisited, revisited the play script and reworked it slightly for, for the 21st century. All the references to Alan Berg's murder um, were... Um, uh, appeared when the film was in pre-production. They weren't really about the original play, but but um, they'd been worked in based upon the fact that uh, Edward Pressman, the producer who had worked with Stone previously on Wall Street and so on, had optioned the play. And he'd also optioned uh, Stephen Singular's book about Allenberg, Talk to Death, which I mentioned previously. And he asked Stone to serve as to excuse me, put my teeth back in Stone to serve as the co-producer and help Bogosian work the play script into a feature film script. At the time. Um, Stone wasn't going to direct it, he was deep in other projects. He was actually developing what would become Born on the 4th of July, um, but the production of that was delayed by a year or two, um, and Stone kind of slotted himself in as the director of Talk Radio. But prior to that, other directors have been considered, uh, Pressman was going to produce, Stone was going to co-produce, and they considered Adrian Lyne, Sidney Lumet, Lumet, you know, if you think about Network, would have been a quite an interesting choice, I think, for this. Uh, William Friedkin was considered. Alan Parker, as well, was considered. Some of these, however, tried to recast the part of Champlain. Um, uh, Pressman insisted that Bogosian played the lead because he'd seen him on stage playing this character. Um, but, um, uh, you know, some of these directors, I'm not sure which one of, the, one of them insisted that Dustin Hoffman uh, play the part, which maybe... That feels like a, a very Sydney Lumet, you know, Sydney Lumet's talk radio with Dustin Hoffman as Barry Champlain. It's sort of, I can see that. Um, but Bogosian adapted content from the book, of course, which Pressman had um, optioned uh, and wrote some new scenes from the film, Look, looking at the failed marriage with Alan Green's character, the pre-radio job uh, in the closed store and how, Bogos, uh, how Champlain became uh, Champ, uh, Barry Champlain because he changes his name, doesn't he, of course. Uh, and becomes the the, mm-hmm. the radio shock jock. Also, the sports event and the fans booing Champlain, that was all something that was, I think, quite heavily detailed in this singular book. 
which I did read many years ago, you know, uh, when he turned to a sports event, I think, and, and the fans booed him, and he was quite sort of shocked at that. And the final montage of voices as well was, was something that was added uh, for Champlain after his murder. And these are all sort of aspects of, of Berg's life story. Um, there had been some other films about uh, Berg's story. Of course, there was Costa Gavras's film Betrayed with um, Tom Berenger um, in 88 as well, earlier in the year. And also there's a play by Stephen Dietz, um, ironically, because Dietz is the representative of Met the name of the, the Metro Wave representative in this film called God's Country in 88. Um, but uh, as I say, when scheduling problems delayed the production of Bond on the 4th of July, Stone agreed to direct on radio. The initial budget, and I, I, I couldn't find the, the actual sort of final budget for the film, um, but it was under $6 million and, and it was shot over 25 days, uh, as you say, AD, um, as well. So the other thing that the, the film does is it moves the action to Dallas, which I think is quite interesting because what you've got in the, the opening sequence of the film, the title sequence, is those shot, shots of the high-rises, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And um, I'll come on to a bit later, maybe we'll talk about this, the way that the, the studio is is seems sort of separated from the rest of the world, very impervious. And I think the setting of the high-rise sort of emphasises that, I think. Um, you know, how isolated and impervious, like a goldfish bottle, you know, uh, uh, Champlain's recording studio is. But... Um, yeah, I mean, what about the personnel? What about Oliver Stone? Adi, you said you were a big fan of, of Stone's work. Uh, I was around this time. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, <clears throat> so things like, I mean, I think I first, I think I first, well, ironically, the first I became aware of Stone, but unbeknownst to me, sort of thing, is Conan the Barbarian, uh, which he wrote the original draft of. Yes. Um, which I was unaware of at the time, and that was a few years later that I, I became aware of that and uh, when reading around that sort of thing, and it was some kind of. Um, I remember there was an interview with Milius where he said that he couldn't. It was it was unfilmable what he'd written, um, yeah. so it had to be uh, you know toned down sort of thing. So uh, um, I'd, I'd seen the hand. Um, yes, yeah. the, the, Michael, the Michael Michael Caine, um, yeah. Beast with Five Fingers stories. horror horror thing. Uh, yeah. great. But then uh, I really um, started to like his uh, work when I watched Salvador Platoon, yes, Wall yeah. Street. And that's why, you know, and then Born on the Force and Talk Radio sits right in the middle of that lot. And that's why I'm pretty sure I've seen it. I just it's it, I think it's just overshadowed by I mean, if, if we look at the run of films he had at this point, Salvador Platoon, Wall Street, Talk Radio, Born on the Force, The Doors, JFK. Um, yeah. Heaven and Earth, uh, uh, and then Natural Born Killers, Nixon, U-Turn, Any Given Sunday. I mean, as a run of films, that's that's pretty damn strong. Astounding, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and to cover such, you know, diverse elements, but, you know, as he does sort of thing. And so it, it was always, for me, Oliver Stone was just, uh, you know, strap in and sit down and get ready whenever you watched one of his films, because you knew you were going to kind of have this sort of, it was going to be, you know, you weren't going to look away from the screen for like two to three hours or however long he had it sort of thing, because he, yeah. he, he just seemed to have this command of the screen. It was just, and, and I think talk radio, for two thirds of it has that as well. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm a, I was a big, big Oliver Stone fan. You know, he's and I think that that quote from um, from Empire is, is pretty apt. He always seemed to be railing against uh, the the Hollywood establishment, but was sort of, you know needed its money to pr to produce what he needed, sort of thing. So there's kind of strange dichotomy um, of you know uh, you know you don't want to you know always constantly biting the hand that feeds him. 
Um, yeah. And you, you kind of got that when you read any interviews with him. And obviously his experiences in Vietnam would, would you know, lead to um, obviously a lot of his views of the establishment and, you know, America as a whole. And, and his films were very challenging. They, were, they weren't easy watches for, for me as a, you know, I mean, we've spoken about a simple, you know, we spoke about Civil Plan, we spoke about Sam Raimi. So there was the Sam Raimi sort of goofball stuff on one hand, uh, which I really enjoyed sort of thing. And then on the other was this, you know, really hard, you know, for, for his sort of, what, what, yeah, plus Salvador came out in 86, so I was 14. So I probably watched that when I was about 15, 16. You know, this was a, a, a different kind of experience for a sort of 15, 16 year old to be sort of going to watching these films. Um, and so, yeah, they, I think they had a bit of a, an effect on me. And I think the biggest one, um was as much as it's been derided and talked about and you know discussed and everything was jfk um yeah. and obviously i think we'll we'll discuss that when we call maybe robert richardson who did the photography for it uh but but jfk for all its faults is an absolute tour de force it's an astonishing film because it it, it it's incredible I, I, there's a lot i think actually watching talk radio there's a lot of talk radio in jfk in the round table sequences um yeah, yeah. and, and Stone's ability to, you know, create really long scenes from just people talking and have you absolutely riveted to your to your chair is is you know you don't get that from many directors. There are not many directors who can pull that off. Um, and so um, I've not been you know I think after I think probably at any given Sunday I don't think he's done much more that I've, I've watched. Um, I don't think I've seen W. I'm just looking through. Um, so yeah, it was that period of time, sort of thing, where I was a, a huge fan. And, and you know, as much as he's got his detractors and he's got his, his problems and there's you know there's, there's issues around some of his maybe some of his viewpoints. I mean, JFK was heavily criticised for being um, you know homophobic and you know uh, yeah. that kind of thing. So he does he does cut you know court these controversies. Uh, as, as a filmmaker, I think he's a you know he's a coming out of the 80s through the 90s sort of thing he was one of the powerhouses for me so yeah 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 mark do you have any feelings about stone's work maybe not necessarily his work but um i i, I don't know a huge deal about the man to be honest um this, this is sort of the first contact i've had of course i say contact with him obviously i've not met him um <laughs> i understand obviously with uh, <laughs> Um, a very prolific and, and sometimes provocative um, artist, I suppose. Um, in looking a little bit into him, um, what I mean, uh, sorry to me interrupt is... you, Mark, but I mean it's hard to. I, I think you're quite quite significantly younger than, than myself and, and Aidy, and I think it's hard to imagine how how much of a phenomenon JFK was, particularly. I think you know, and, and, and yeah. um, that and wonderful killers. killers. Yeah, platoon to JFK, Natural Born Killers was 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 uh, obviously uh, you know at the forefront of of conversation for different reasons. I mean, I remember seeing that in the cinema. I mean, I I like mm. Natural Born Killers, and, and I, I actually saw it in the cinema th- as a big as a big fan of Stone's work. I saw it in the cinema th- twice in one day, three times. I went to see it. Good sorry, Lord. Mark, and, <laughs> I don't mean to disrupt you, but I went to see it in, in an afternoon screening, and then um, you know because I. Was I doing my A levels at the time, or something like that? And 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 uh, you know, it was cheap in the afternoon, wasn't it? The cinema, if you remember. And mm-hmm. uh, I sort of popped down to the pictures to see it. And then in the afternoon, my girlfriend phoned up. She said, uh, "I just want to go see Natural Born Killers." And said, "Well, funnily enough, <laughs> I saw it this afternoon. I didn't think you'd be interested in that." I said, "Sure." And 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 then I went to see it a week later to, after I digested it a bit. Um, 
you know, again, in another afternoon screening. Uh, because there's there's so much in that film, and, and I mean we talk about you know Hollywood films and, and being very choppy, but natural natural born killers is, but I think there's a purpose to it. You know, it's it's sort of satire of the media, and um, all three times that I saw it, there were mass walkouts, and I'm I'm talking like <laughs> you know a third to a half of the audience um, walking out of the film. Um, and I don't think it was because they were offended by the violence. I think they were just confused by the proliferation. Because at that point, post JFK, Stone had worked into his his sort of discourse the the um, use of different sixteen mil and, and video mm-hmm. footage, and and I think people just you know that blew the minds, blew the tiny little minds, and then they just stormed out of the cinema en masse. Yeah, um, I think obviously Natural One Killers was probably expecting a, a was true romance out at this point. And obviously yeah, we'd, ha- well, we'd had, you know, yeah. Reservoir Doctors, a Tarantino link. So people were expecting yeah. a Tarantino film. What exactly. they got was an Oliver Stone film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for better or worse, depending on the viewpoint. Um, I like Natural Born Killers, I still do. But yeah, I think so, I. Uh, so, so I think it's hard to sort of, you know, for anybody that wasn't there to sort of rem- to, to imagine how much of a phenomenon those films were, especially JFK. Sorry, Mark, I interrupted your... Yeah, no, that's all right. Obviously, I was I was born in 1990, so yeah, uh, you know these these are all sort of either before or around me being a wee a wee baby, um, yeah. and obviously <clears throat> be I'm I'm not well I wouldn't consider myself a young man, um, mostly because you know it it, it hurts to stand up, but um, yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> just, uh, just, just not <laughs> worth it. exposed to growing up. But um, well, one thing I did know, um, what, what I found to be ironic, um, about Stone when I was sort of having a, a bit of a look, a bit of a look into him, um, was that given the the sort of the themes and the subject matter of, of talk radio being anti-Semitism, and um, he um he got into a bit of controversy with making some um Holocaust comments. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. Which I found to be a bit ironic, but um, I, personally, I don't think you know. I mean, what he, I don't, I don't particularly think what he what he said was meant to be, you know, um, insulting or to anyone's memory or or to the to you know to the to the event. And in fact, you know, he came out and apologised and did say that you know obviously the Holocaust was a bad thing. Um, but that that just sort of struck me as a little bit. Um, ironic and maybe not distasteful but um I, I don't know sort of like maybe sort of he'd maybe forgotten that he'd made such a film about about how you know the, how disgusting anti-semitism is and and racism yeah. is and that i mean not to sort of you know uh, um offer con- condolence for his comments but uh, uh it was kind of framed i think this about 10 years ago it was framed in a discussion of foreign well, policy t- i think t- and, t- and, t- and, t- yeah, and 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 you know, it, 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 it's kind of he's what he's a provocateur, a bit like Barry Champlain, I think. And I think, uh, I think sometimes he says these things and and doesn't necessarily. Um, there's a a part of stone that sort of pokes, <laughs> that needles yeah. and, and that response like Champlain, and maybe that's what drew him to the material. Perhaps I don't know. I mean, I'm speculating. You know, sorry, Mark. No, that's that's all right. Like I said, um, it's not really he's not really a director that I've been exposed to much, to be honest. And I just I just thought that was an ironic little uh, sort of anecdote considering the um, subject matter of the film. 
Um, I mean, if you if you haven't, then I, I would, uh, you know, if you want a if you want a, a few evenings of entertainment, then go, go from his run from Salvador to any given Sunday. Just yeah. work your way through. Just work your way through them um, because there's in not order. a bad one there. Yeah, in order. I think it, you know if you if you yeah. watch in order, it's, there's a cumulative sense of a progression of events. Oh, <laughs> you young people, you don't know you're born. <laughs> I'm currently re watching the animated Clone Wars series, and I shall do nothing until it's finished. <laughs> oh, you, you and your cartoons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll just um, JFK again. I'm trying to introduce. I'm trying to gen- gently introduce my five-year-old into the world of Star Wars, and I thought if I can get him to watch a cartoon of it, then you know I could jump straight into. You might enjoy Salvador. <laughs> Possibly. Don't, don't show him Salvador, please. Um, he might enjoy. He might enjoy talk radio. Talk radio. There's no. Paul, what do you? What do you think, Paul? What do you think to Oliver Stone? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Stone's work. I think, like you say, that run. I mean, his first couple of films were uh, rough. <laughs> I think it's fair to say, wasn't it? Um, yeah. You know, the, the Hand and, and Queen of Evil, um, uh, which was um, that was released on a different title, wasn't it? In, in a few places, Seizure. Um, you know, but when when you get to Sal, I mean, Salvador is an incredible film, and I used to show that a lot to students um, with the, the old uh, digital media production degree uh, because it, it kind of went down well with the film production students, but it also went down well with the the photography students, because of course it's about a photographer, um, and I think that's amazing. I mean, that's such a powerful, powerful film, um, you know. And, and it's uh, I don't want to talk too much about sort of controversial figures, but you know, you've got you've got Stone, who's obviously uh, courts controversy, and James Woods, who's kind of you know James Woods these days, isn't he? Is uh, not an actor; he's a voice. But um, um, but then you go to Platoon, and Platoon, and Platoon was so. At the time, that was kind of the first wave of from Apocalypse Now, that, that sort of first wave of films about the the legacy of the Vietnam War. But Platoon felt very authentic, and, and it was pitched so much based on Stone's own experiences um, in, in the war itself. And that's such a powerful film. Wall Street, which I mean, I, I love Wall Street. I like, I quite like the sequel, Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps as well. Um Talk Radio, born on the 4th of July. I have a slight aversion to that because of Tom Cruise, but I think it's a great film, great picture, but it's just Tom Cruise. <laughs> At the Doors, um, you know, uh, that's very, a very slick production, I think, The Doors. And then you go to JFK with its mixed media. and I mean, JFK, I mean, I remember seeing that at the cinema. I think that was probably the first stone film that I saw at the cinema. But that was an incredible experience. I mean, that was such a sort of memorable experience. Heaven and Earth. Um, I quite like Heaven and Earth, Natural Born Killers. I mean, as I say, saw that in the pictures three times. Nixon, I saw at the cinema also. Um, an amazing film. U-Turn. I, I don't. I can't remember if I saw that in the cinema, but I, I, I love U-Turn. Any given Sunday, saw that cinema. I think I saw that twice. But, you know, from 2000 onwards, Alexander, World Trade Centre, W. Uh, Wall Street, when you never sleep, savages. I, I have seen most of these, some of them at the cinema, but I just feel like, you know, um, Stone's lost his edge in filmmaking wise. And in some ways, the comments that Mark was saying, I think he's, he's, he's sort of trying to 
maybe that's got something to do with the financing and, and not being able to secure financing for i mean can you imagine getting a film like salvador finance these days i mean i, I can't imagine the you know hemdale a company like hemdale sort of getting it into mainstream cinemas um it was Hemdale, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was uh, David Hemmings uh, production company. Um, and then, you know, you come on to the, those sort of, he lost his bite in, in, in filmmaking terms and sort of makes up for it by controversial comments in the media, perhaps. Uh, but there's been an increasing emphasis on uh, documentaries, hasn't there? So, you know, it's, it's more recent work. So, yeah, I mean, I like Stone's work. Um, I feel since 2000, you know, I've, I've become quite alienated, um, I think, from the films themselves, but also, you know, from some of the comments that he's made, um, which have been a bit sort of, uh, a bit too Barry, Cham- Barry Champlain-esque. I always get sort of mixed up with the pronunciation of Champlain, Champlain or Champlain, I get a bit mixed. So apparently if I do, I do sort of make that mistake. I think, they, I think they do in the film as well, if I'm honest. I was going to say, I think they're doing the film, yeah, yeah. So I think that's the source of it. Um, but yeah, that's that's my feelings about um, Stone's work. Appearances, kind of thing, mine. Yeah, <laughs> I said bucket bouquet. <laughs> um, yeah. But as, as you said, AD, when when you think this is sandwiched between Wall Street and Born on the Fourth of July, you know, it's kind of the it's forgotten about, and and um, I think it's on par with Stone's other work of this period. Um, I think personally. Um, you know, I'll take I'll take it over. I mean, as good as Bond on the Fourth of July is, I'll take it over that any day. I think any day, any day of the week, perhaps. What about Bogosian? Aside from Under Siege Two and uh, turning up in what I watched of that, what's that recent? Um, uh, what's this Adam Sandler film? Um, the one that came out on Netflix last year. Uh, the one that's oh, okay. sort of an assault on the senses. Uh, oh. uncut, ge- uncut gems. Do you know? I've not seen that. I think I, I got about half of the way through it because I, you need a break. It, it's just it's kind of if you think you know it's natural born killers. This is hard to watch in a different way. It was just very hard to watch. Yeah, um, I think yeah. I just needed a break. So I got about halfway through that. But apart from that, and like you said, you know, under siege two. No, I'm not really. I'm, I don't know much about Eric Bogosian. I have to say, um, I, you know, you watch this and you think, oh, he's going to go on to some interesting stuff, and yeah. it doesn't doesn't really happen. I don't know. Maybe he, maybe this wasn't what he wanted to do. I don't know. Maybe he was put off by Stone. I don't know. But it, um, you know, I think I think he's good in this, um, and obviously it's it's his forte. Um, um, but. Are we talking about his performance? You know, are we talking about just him as an actor or his performance in the film? Because I think um, in the film, he's good in it for two thirds. Yeah. Um, which I think is the, what I'm going to say about the film itself. Um, and I don't think he kind of, I don't know, his, his range seems to be a bit lacking in the sort of more when he's not actually at the microphone. I don't know whether that's purposeful or not. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not, you know, he's in Blade Trinity. I don't know. I know. I, well, it's, it's, and Charlie it's really Day, patchy. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, his career is very patchy, isn't it? I think that's that's fair to say. Um, yeah. I'll come. I'll come on to that in a moment. I think what you say about he's he's good when he's at the mic. That's the play. That's kind of the play script, and he'd done that for a couple of years. And then the other stuff, Champlain's sort of background, and and uh, you know the scenes when he's away from the studio was what was added for the film script. And maybe that that sort of explains that that uh, difference in his performance style, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Mark, do you are you aware of uh, Bogosi before this or loved him in short circuit? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about the Police Academy films and Cocoon. Yeah, <laughs> that was highlight of his no, um, it's, to be honest, this, this is the only thing I've seen him in. Um, I think a little bit like AD, I thought, you know, his, his performance when he's when he's Radio Barry um, is is very intense, especially that last sort of monologue um, where he's sort of he's, he's looking at the uh, looking at the mic, you know, sort of like he hates it. Um, but with the other scenes, like especially the sort of the flashbacks, and they to me seem a little bit half-hearted, maybe. Um, yeah. Um. I think you know, in in points, it's 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 you know, it's quite a well-written character, and um, I don't know, I don't, I think it could be more of a well, more well-rounded character. Um, but. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I sort of, I have swings and roundabouts, sort of, um, for for his for his acting of the character of the character. Um, I was reading um, um, a documentary, uh, not a documentary, sorry, an interview that um, he gave to uh, the Guardian in two thousand seventeen, and it was about sort of talk radio, and he was talking about um, you know his comedy and stuff like that, and and how he was. Sort of a, a bit inspired by John Belushi when he was a uh, oh yes thinking, yeah thinking about his career and um, how he wanted to um, make his audience la- larger and he, there's there's one sort of uh, line he gave and he said um, you know what would I be willing to to do to get my audience to be larger um, I played the Batcave in Soho or squats in Amsterdam where I'd be as obnoxious as possible but I was like where is this leading and then when I found Barry I hit pay dirt and. Maybe I'm sort of misconstruing what he's he's saying, but I don't know. That sounds like someone who maybe wants to be famous for for fame's sake. Maybe I don't know if that's a bit too harsh. Um, I think there's a, an interesting because uh, Bogosian said about the play that it was in some in some respects, or rather than film, that in some respects it was semi autobiographical because it was a, a point in his life where. Before that, he'd been a monolinguist, and um, you know, like I say, a stand-up comic, more of a performance artist, stand-up, very punk rock stand-up comic. I mean, he developed this character, um, uh, Ricky. Uh, what was his name? I can't remember his name. Ricky Paul um, in the seventies. It was a sort of a. I mean, I mentioned Bernard Manning previously, and it was a bit of a joke, but uh, it sort of ties in here because the, the Ricky Paul persona that Bogosian had developed was very deliberately provocative. He's sort of racist. He would sort of throw out racist, sexist jokes, a bit like um, Alexis Sales, um, the world's worst warm man. What was his name? Um, oh, AD. What was, what was the name of that character? Um, how you did it? Was that another Barry? Um, but yeah, I honestly can't remember. There was a, there was a period in the nineties where sort of progressive comics had uh, uh, they referenced these sort of working men's club type comics in Britain. Um, there was you know, um, there was John Thompson's Bernard Wright on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, well, I uh, yeah. And 
uh, Stuart Lee kind of does that in his act sometimes. But uh, because he developed this Ricky Paul character, he was kind of a racist, sexist comedian. And he played in, in these clubs in New York, very sort of liberal and progressive, um, and deliberately provoked confrontation with audiences. And it was sort of, it was more, more than stand-up comic, it was more like punk theatre. And you, you, you get that in Champlain. And um, I think that's quite sort of evident in Champlain. And then Hollywood called with with the making of this film, and and, and Bogosian had acted previously in small roles. I mean, go back to Larry Cohen, but he, he was in the stuff, very small, very very small role in, in Larry Cohen's the stuff, and he also played a more significant role in, in Cohen's special effects against Zoe Tamlis or Zoe Lund um, as, as as a bad guy in that picture, and. Um, you know, with with talk radio in, in eighty eight, there was this kind of point where he had to Hollywood was beckoning and he was neglecting his family. I watched an interview with with Bogosian in, in from two thousand and seven, the Charlie Rose interview, where he sort of says, you know, at that point he felt like he was neglecting his family to sort of take up the opportunities that that Hollywood was was presenting to him, and this tension between family and advancing his career, and we see that I think in the script, which is kind of what going back to what you were saying, Merck, I think. Um, you know, at that point in his life, Bogosian was kind of experiencing that. Um, and Stone also advised Bogosian uh, when making Top Radio that he could either write or act. He couldn't divide the time between both of these endeavours. And he sort of threw himself into quite a lot of acting work in the 90s, um, under Siege 2, of course. But Dolores Claiborne, I'd always forgotten. I always forget that he's in Dolores Claiborne, too. As as um, I mean, he appeared in, in, in sort of TV shows, Larry Sanders' show, um, you know, it was in uh, Woody Allen's Deconstructing Harry, and, and so on and so forth. So I think you get this 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 aspect of uh, Champlain's character, um, you know, torn between... Uh, family and and, um, uh, and work and, and sort of advancing his career is is, is evident. It, it comes from uh, Bogosian self, and there's that great moment in the film, isn't there, where, which is something that's not in the script, where, um, you know, in one of the flashbacks, Champlain says to his wife, she says, um, uh, "What about?" He asks, he asks her to act as his producer, as he's becoming known. Uh, as he's acquiring this radio show for himself, his solo radio show, the flashback, and um, you know his, his his wife says, "What about our marriage?" And he says, uh, "Fuck our marriage, doesn't he?" He says, um, uh, <laughs> "I mean, it's really, really a, an unpleasant moment." And Ellen Green is so sweet in the film that you feel her pain. But he says, uh, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to find the, the, the proper quote. He says, "Fuck our marriage." He says, "What?" Uh, you know, I want this to be the best show, or, or something along those lines, doesn't he? You know, mm. I've got to, I've got to develop this into the best show that it can be. Um, and I, I think there's a, a sense there. Bogosian suggested this Charlie Rose interview from 2007. Uh, there's a sense that some of that was sort of semi-autobiographical, if you like. It came from um, Bogosian's own. Uh, sort of feelings uh, about his his, uh, his uh, relationship with his wife and so on at that time, and he, and and his the tension that, that that was brought by the call from Hollywood, if you like. Uh, sorry, Mark, I interrupted you mid-flow. Went on a massive sidebar. That's all right. Um, <laughs> the, the only other thing I sort of wanted to say was um, one thing that always sort of got me about. His, his performance as 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 Barry, um, 
was just the sort of the way he looked at people. Um, I think I thought a lot of his acting, I think maybe sort of came sometimes not from what he was saying, but sort of when he was not talking. Like the the the, the lasting impression of me, uh, for me, feels like Barry Champlain was uh, a zoo animal. Um, you know, he's he's always in that room where people are stood at different windows and they're always staring yeah. at him, wanting him to perform. And um, and there's a lot of times where he's he's looking out and he's not really doing anything. You know, he's just staring at the people who are staring back at him. Like uh, you mentioned earlier that he's a bit like a goldfish in a bowl. Uh, for me, he was more sort of like a caged lion. And um, I don't know, his, his performance sort of really put that across to me where he was starting to realise that. And maybe yeah. that's why he was sort of riling up people so much that I don't know, maybe maybe he wanted to be uh you know, assassinated at the end, you know, spoiler alert if no one's seen it. Um, yeah. But yeah, just just those sort of like little glances at people. You know, you know, like the scene where he's opening the shoebox when uh, it's supposed to be a bomb. Yeah. And um the way he's looking at people while he's doing it and it's sort of like yeah, like 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 I said, he's like a lion in a cage, isn't he? That's gonna that's just at any moment he's just waiting to to snap at these people who are staring at him. Yeah, there's there's definitely a self destructive path, isn't there? That he's on, yeah. you know, and, and you get that from the moment when he's opening that that box, and you don't know if it's a bomb, and and Dan's not. Baldwin's convinced it's a bomb. Laura is, um, you know, Stewart's, and and he opens it up, and it's a dead rat. But but I think you know, Champlain at that point evidences his self-destructive um, sort of aspect, um, almost inviting his own uh, demise, if you like. Um, what about something like earlier about it's, it's it's an Obi-Wan Kenobi style death, isn't it? Where he says to Vader, you know, strike me down now, and I should be more powerful than you can imagine. <clears throat> and that's sort that- of. Evidenced a bit in in his death scene, isn't it? Where you know the the screen goes white as if you know he's the Messiah and stuff, and it looks up at that antenna, and then you hear all these people's voices sort of lamenting his death. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I. I. In legacy, his his yeah. kind of voice acquires a greater potency. You might say. Yeah. I agree fully, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about the other cast members? I mean, we've got McGinley. Um, who, uh, who works frequently with, or worked frequently with Stone in this this aspect, this this sort of era of his career? Uh, Baldwin, Alec Baldwin. I have to admit that I always get the Baldwins mixed up. Uh, <laughs> there's too many. Baldwins. <laughs> there's too many Baldwins. Other than Stephen, I can recognise Stephen, but Alec and Daniel and William, I always get those mixed up. Well, uh, Alec's the one I always recognise. <laughs> there's John Pankow, of course, or uh, Pankov, Pankow, who I always associate with his role in Three Kids to Live and Die in LA, uh, which is around about the same era. Michael Wincott, you know, Wincott, who um, uh, uh, I, I mostly remember from his name. I know he'd been acting for a long time prior to this, but his name became sort of memorable to me from The Crow, particularly where he plays the, the chief antagonist. Yeah. Um, and I think Wincott's great in this as the stoner, Kent, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, um, that's all Rose type. Yeah, I mean Ellen Green. I think she's great as as, as Ellen, uh, Barry's ex-wife. I mean, you know, such a sort of a, a warm personality. I think um, Leslie Hope as well. Leslie Hope's a bit bland. I think her performance. I would say, um, 
Especially how the pr the producer is girlfriend. Laura. Yeah. 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 yeah she's. Yeah. I think she's there to fill a fill a hole, fill a role. Yeah. Um, she's not. Doesn't really have much of a part, does she? I don't. Um, I don't think the film would suffer without her. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think I think that's the problem. It's the problem I had with the film sort of thing. Is the film is, is and I think we seem to be in agreement with this sort of thing. The film is the strongest, you know. And I would have just preferred maybe three nights of him at the at the radio, yeah. um, rather than that middle section where it's that it's that there's enough inference and stuff. You know, he rings when he rings Ellen, and she comes, and and I think you know there's enough in that sequence where he rings the sort of thing and he's he manipulates her into coming. Um, well, just, you know, I, I need you here. Um, you know, yeah, and there's, there's that moment sort of thing where it's it, it's focusing all on him, and he like he he stops talking because when, when he goes, he does that. Oh, well, you know, if you can't make it, then, and he's got that look on his face, going, "I know exactly how to play this woman to get her to do what I want." Yeah, um, and that's what his face does. That's a really, really good. Um, you know, it's a really good piece, a little bit of piece of acting that uh, Bogosian does there, sort of thing, because you can just re you, you see exactly what he's doing, you know, yeah. you know, gaslighting or whatever you want to call it, sort of thing. But it's just manipulating yeah, exactly. her into doing what he wants. Yeah, and 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 I would have preferred if she'd have just turned up and just been like Monday night and Tuesday night, and because at the moment it's just Friday night and Monday night, isn't it? The two the film centers over. Yeah, yeah. That week that weekend space where he goes to the the, the game. Um, you know, we get the impression that most people who call him don't like him. We get the yeah. None of it doesn't introduce anything to the film um, in 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 that way sort of thing, and and I I would have preferred if they'd have just stuck with that and and told the story through the interactions he has with the characters in that radio station. That would yeah, have been I, a, a better a better film for me, I think. But I I can see that the 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 story about the game was kind of t uh, taken from uh, Singular's book about Albert. It does feel crowbarred in, you know, he goes to that game. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching that scene, and when it was finished, I just thought, "What was the point of that?" Yeah, yeah. the flashbacks I'll come back to a bit later, I think. But uh, you know, there's a scene where he's booed by the crowd. I think he realizes at that point that that who he thinks he is isn't who people take it. That he's he's kind of the villain that the boo at, perhaps. And he's introduced as as the man you all love to hate, isn't he? Of course, at that at that point. Um, there, there are two things about the foot. The, the is it baseball or football game? I can't remember which. Basketball. But, uh, is it basketball? Yeah, yeah, it's basketball. Yeah, it's a basketball it's, court. It's one of those American sports. Um, and, <laughs> um, <laughs> that sounds awfully derogatory, but anyway. Um, but um, but uh, there's I, the thing I like about that is that moment where Anna Thompson. We we mentioned Chura Mance earlier, but Anna Thompson turns up, and and the crow, of course, she's in the crow, isn't she? Is Darla, but she turns up in that wonderful Marilyn Monroe way that she has in those films. If you remember Chura Mance, she's the the girl that tries to, uh, she comes on to Christian Slater in the bar at the start, and they're talking about Elvis, um, but. Uh, you know, she approaches Champlain and she's she's laughing riotously, doesn't she? She says he should be ashamed, and she throws a drink into his face. And I th I think that the game sequence doesn't quite work, but I love that moment from uh, Thompson. The other thing from the game sequence that I take is the uh, the fact that Rocket's Red Glare is there, isn't he? As as and he's the guy that assassinates um, Champlain at the end, and we don't quite know whether he's Chet. This this is the neo Nazi that's been phoning up. Or whether it's some other neo-Nazi or whatever, 
the thing about Singular's book is that, like I say, it focuses more on the the order, the, the neo-Nazi group, than it does on Singular. And there were so many members of this, it was like a network, that you kind of, at the end of the picture, you don't know whether um, the guy that kills Champlain is Chet, or whether he's just another neo-Nazi that's been inspired by, um, you know, the order's comments or whatever. But Rocket's Red Glare is there at the... Um, the game, and he's the one that asks Champlain for his autograph, isn't he? Um, yeah, you, you can tell he doesn't want it though, can't you? Because just because yeah. of the way he's sitting, especially like when he's walking away, he's just got that like snarl on his face, hasn't he? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think uh, he's just sort yeah. of trying to prove how easy it is to get close to him, maybe. Yeah, just testing how 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 sort of secure he is, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a good point. Um, but yeah, I mean, what about Stuart Copeland's score? I mean, I think it's Stuart Copeland. I mean, obviously Stuart, Stuart Copeland of the police, Stuart Copeland. Yeah, but I think of, uh, I think of Stuart Copeland from this era. I think of the Equalizer. And, yeah, the, uh, sorry, yeah. AD. So I was going to say, yeah, the the Equalizer um, is for me what I associate him with. But looking through his, um, um, uh, you know, his his, his, his uh, filmography as a composer, he did the Spyro games. Um, uh, which I was like, I read when I looked at it, I went, hey, <laughs> Stuart Copeland, yeah, Sp- he did all three, he did all the Spyro games, so he did Spyro the Dragon, Spyro 2, um, you know, just to sort of take this into a video game era, into a way, but I was like, I was going to say, I've just noted the, the heightened excitement in your voice for the first yeah, time. I was like, wow, <laughs> it's like, finally I can shoehorn video games into this. And now uh, for the next hour, we talk about the police and Spyro. Uh, the Equalizer, Talk Radio to Spyro. That's a weird... Uh, and then right next to Spyro, he does very bad things. Um, <laughs> there's a double bill. There's a, there's a mindset to get into. Um, but, um, yeah. No, Stuart Copeland, obviously, police. Uh, but very certainly, um, the, the uh, you know, his, his work on uh, The Equalizer was the big... Was what I knew him from, for composing-wise. I also know he did See No Evil, Hear No Evil as well. Which yeah. Was, I was just looking at that. I didn't realise that he'd, he'd written the score for that, to be honest. Um, uh, and Wall Street as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was quite surprised at that, actually, because I think I, I sort of see, I watch talk radio and, uh, and the score reminds me of the score for The Equaliser, but I didn't think, I'd forgotten yes. that he'd, he'd written the score for Wall Street, which I think, I've, I've not watched it for a while, but it's tonally, I think it's quite different, the music for that, I think, as I recall. Um my memory could be sort of failing me, but nevertheless. Um, what about um, Robert Richardson? Um, well, where do, you, about... where do you start? Never met. <laughs> I think his collaborations with Stone started on Salvador, didn't they? Yes, looking yeah. at this, yeah. He shot the tune, Wall Street, Talk Radio, Born on the 4th of July, The Doors, JFK, uh, Heaven and Earth, Natural Born Killers, Nixon, Nixon. U-Turn. Um, I think U-Turn's got its problems on the narrative level, but I think the, the photography is amazing. And um, I think that was it, wasn't it? I think he, he any given Sunday, I can't remember who shot that, but then uh, Richardson started working with um, Tarantino, didn't he, on um, Kill Bill and so on. Yeah, worked with Scorsese on Shutter Island. Yeah, yeah. Um, Wag the Dog, another interesting one. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got a. He did obviously worked with Scorsese on Casino as well. Did a few Good Men as well. That's this is quite the resume. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? Really, when you look yeah. at the films that he shot, um, and I think Talk Radio again, 
uh, is one of those that sort of overlooked. Uh, but it's, it's at the front end of his career, isn't it? In the first 10 years of it, let's say. Um, you know, but yeah. I think some of the, the photography is incredible, isn't it? I think. Um, yeah, I, I tell you what, I really did like. I really like the um, the sort of split deep focus stuff going yeah. on when it's you know, Bogosian taking up. Yeah, when it's Bogosian taking up uh, like half the screen, you know, really close up, and then in the background, there's usually you know, it's Alec Baldwin or McGinley or someone just watching him. Um, yeah, and I think that look, throwing their arms in the air in exasperation out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're always behind the glass as well, which kind of separates him from them. Um, and Richardson's shooting that with a with a sort of a portrait lens or something similar, and and you've got that split diopter which gives you the foreground and the background in focus. Yeah, um, yeah. And you get the you get um, Champlain's. Uh, sort of behaviour and, and you know it's, it's deliberate sort of provocation with Laura Stewart and, and they look back from the booth don't they silently and, and, and as you say Mark you get the sense of them throwing their hands up in the air I mean you mentioned Frasier earlier I think that was before we started recording but you know Roz with uh, Frasier Better not be I was planning that for ages <laughs> <laughs> but you get you know it's comical in there isn't it but Roz with Frasier when he says stuff and you can see it going oh shut up you know oh, she and knocks get... on the glass and Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think so much of that is carried by the the photography and, and the staging of de- in, staging in depth to achieve that. Um, mm. The set is separated from the others by by the glass, and there are some wonderful shots. I think where you see them in the glass, but you also see Champlain reflected in the glass. So you see his head in the foreground, mm-hmm. and you see him reflected in the glass, and them sort of reacting to what he's saying over that reflection. Yeah. It's, it's almost of... sort of Attenborough-esque in a way, isn't it? Like a like if we if we go back to the facts, you know, of him being sort of like an like maybe sort of like a caged animal. It's sort of being it's like he's being shot and recorded in a nature documentary, isn't it? Like this is this animal that we're watching in, in his natural <clears throat> environment. And you yeah. you know you can see sort of Towards the end of the film, he goes from being the lion to the antelope, being surrounded by hyenas, doesn't he? Yeah, I like that. That that analogy works very well. I think. I think yeah. yeah, that that works very well. Um, because there's a lot of. I mean, we're getting onto the analysis now. I think, but there's a lot of. Uh, it, it's about territory, isn't it? In some in some respects, it's about Champlain's sort of perception of the um, the studio space as his territory. Um, you know, uh, dominated by his ego, is that? Um, yeah, and I think that that ties in with you know when he gets the news of going national, um, and he switches from being obviously you know the, the big fish in the small pond to being a, um, as you say, that sort of more you know smaller fish in a much much bigger pond, and I think that, that you know, freaks him out completely. And and going from that, you know, the the one with the power to maybe realizing actually I'm not the one with the power. And I think yeah. his interaction, interactions with um, his growing sort of friction, frictional interactions with the Alec Baldwin character, his boss, throughout the film, you know, under, undermine his belief in, you know, what he is and what what power he actually wields. Something yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, because particularly there's that sort of moment where uh, Deets, the Metro Wave uh, played by John Prenko, is, is, is listening to the, the, the recording. And uh, Champlain says, you know, he's going to come in here tomorrow and do the same show I always do. 
isn't there? And and there's that sort of sense of him kicking against the bricks there. And when he's told that Night Talk won't be going national on Monday, it's delayed, he launches into a rant. He says, Night Talk still has a standard, a purpose to which it must rise. The show is about saying what needs to be said. But really, what what does he say? (laughs) I think that's that's the question that I have to ask. I mean, he's got this anti-corporate, anti-big business stance, which is mirrored in Kent a bit later on. And and I think Champlain sees Kent as the dark mirror of himself, you know, because he expresses similar viewpoints, but but, uh, with with similar emptiness. But but really, you know, um, Champlain's sense of self-importance um, you know, he says this show is about telling, saying what needs to be said. But, but what is it that he's saying? I don't know if any of you have any feelings about that. What, what is the well, point of Barry? It's, it's, it's the whole general. For me, it's like that everyone in America seems to have think that they have a voice that needs to be heard, and there's that 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 little pairing of words that comes up constantly, um, not only in the show but in in reality as well and it annoys me so much and it's the the use of the two words this country over and over and over again like everyone's an expert and it's just yet another platform of people moaning about what's wrong with this country and you know ringing up and talking about the kids on the crack and and all this kind of stuff and everyone thinks they've got something really important to say and really it's just it's just repetition isn't it it's just mm. constant repetition this is yeah. what's wrong with this country and it's just it, yeah. it infuriates me and it's and it's it's still repeated today you know it's this is we're talking <clears> about 1988 this film came out and it's it's exactly the same today is it sorry Eddie, you were going to say oh, something I, I, no i was just going to say sort of thing my my take on him sort of thing was that um champlain is a re- relatively you know empty character um and he he needs if you think about what he's saying sort of thing he constantly he needs the um the words of others to fill him up and give him purpose yeah. um and so that's you know from the like there's the very first near the very beginning sort of thing he has a uh, sort of interaction a sort of quite heated interaction with john t mcginley's character where he's like are you feeding me rubbish give me better stuff give me stuff i could use because he doesn't have anything of his own to say he's, he's, he's kind of reactionary and by the end of it obviously that changes slightly but for the most part this feels like um you know a, a person who who is you know we see this through the film sort of thing he, he just wants to use people to get what he can get there's nothing actually to him there's, there's a bit in the um one of the more interesting bits in the uh, the bit in the in the basketball arena where the the woman says oh we all hate you and stuff like that and he's going like you need me you you need me in your life you're listening to stuff and, and to me that was like him you know they they're a sort of parasitical you know symbiotic relationship between him and his audience the audience need him as much as he needs them and he he has nothing as you were saying, what is he saying? He's not saying anything because unless he gets someone interesting on to say something to or to then give him the platform to say something, he doesn't have anything to say um, until, you know, the, the big old rant at the end sort of thing where it, it all breaks apart. Um, yeah, but, yeah. you know, he, he's, 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 an empty, he's almost like an empty vessel. It's what, it's what I got from his character. He's, he's devoid <clears throat> of any kind of real feeling or sentiment towards anybody. He has no, you know... Uh, you know, emotional connection with people. He just is a manipulative, uh, you know, person who just wants, you know, other people to feed his ego 
and to feed yeah. his um his 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 uh, his need to be uh, to be listened to but really it's just just all vapid air yeah that's what i, I mean thought. you know he expresses opinions that are all over the political spectrum as well doesn't he he's neither neither left nor right he's a provocateur but goes has admitted that in that charlie rose interview that i said you know that i mentioned earlier from 2007 he says that you know is champlain's kind of got what you said uh ad is there's no core sense of what he's trying to express um He's got no core self. He's an actor. You know, his intention is to provoke or react to his audience. Therefore, his rantings are inconsistent. Um, I mean, at the start of the film, you mentioned the the sort of the, the 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 monologue at the end where it falls apart. But that's intimated at the start, isn't it? I think where he opens with that man, that rant about media priorities. And he says he talks about that survey about people's sexual habits taking priority over the murder of an eighty-three-year-old woman. And he says. You know, quote, we live in a country where culture means pornography and slasher movies, where ethics means payoffs, graft and insider trading. But rarely, as we see later, Champlin is as guilty of exploiting this as anybody else. And there's, there's that wonderful line where, where Dan says to him, and, and uh, you know, I, I identify with a Baldwin at this moment in my life, which is a bit odd. Um, but he says, <laughs> what, what do you think you're doing here, Barry, changing the world? He says, this is a talk show, Barry, and you are, you are a talk show host. And it's kind of, I think, for the audience, you, you know, you become so wrapped up in in Champlain's worldview that you sometimes forget that, as he does. I but, struggle uh, with Bald- Alec Baldwin. I do. Yeah, Bald- Baldwin. I get them confused, and, and I don't. I don't dislike Alec Baldwin, but I'm very aware when I'm watching him that he's Alec Baldwin. Yeah, like, that's a good point. It actually, sounds yeah. like I'll be watching him in anything, like his his little. You know, his cameo in Friends <laughs> he did that time or any other film he's in. And every time he opens his mouth or he's on screen, all I'll be thinking is, that's Alec Baldwin. Yeah. And it takes over everything. So I can't watch him because it's just Alec Baldwin, isn't it? I'm, yeah. sure, he's lovely. I'm sure he's a nice person. <clears throat> but I don't know. I'm just, I'm very distracted by the fact that he's Alec Baldwin. <laughs> 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 yeah, not very chameleon-like, I don't think. No, he's, yeah, exactly. He's he's Alec Baldwin in everything, isn't he? He's the, it's one of the re- I, that's one of the things I don't like about certain actors is they just play themselves in every everything they're in, don't they? Yeah, I mean, um, because in, in that Charlie Rose interview I mentioned previously as well said that uh, you know he suggested and I'm quoting here maybe it's not not about really not really about talk radio at all. It's about the personality that's attracted to audiences. And he's willing to do anything to get those ratings. Specifically, Bogosian said that he was inspired to write the play originally by Belushi, John Belushi, um, seeing Belushi as a character that had been, quote, used up and, quote, abuses himself with an endless need of approval of the audience and willing to do anything to get it, which kind of, I think, contextualises some of what you said, A.D., about mm-hmm. this. You sort of suggested, I don't think you used the word approval, but you suggested that, that Champlain was, was a character that was seeking the approval um, of the gratification of his audience, agreeing with him uh, fundamentally, or, or, you know, seeing him as, as some sort of authority. But, uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the night talk theme is, is uh, Thorogood's bad to the bone, isn't it? And you get the, the sense that that's how Champlain sees himself. Um, you know, and... Uh, um, uh, uh, that 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 the, the connotations of that 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 music quite sort of aggressive, very sort of uh, dominating sound. Um, that's how Champlain sees himself. Um, and I think as well, we go back to that 
that moment, which is show-stopping, which is kind of one of these moments that the New York Times Review criticised, where the camera rotates 360 degrees around, and then all of a sudden you realise that Champlain is rotating, and of course Bogosian's on some sort of platform with a mic, um, and it appears that the studios are rotating around him. I think that that is a, a moment that speaks very much of um, both his isolation from his surroundings. It separates him from his surroundings visually, but also his narcissism as a character. I don't know what you feel about that shot, Mark. Did, did it impress you in any way? Or um, It interested me. Um, I don't think the mechanics of it impressed me, um, but it, it, I definitely found it very interesting because... Um, one thing that I noticed throughout the, the the entirety of the film is that in the the sort of the sound recording, um, whenever Barry is talking into a mic, his voice sounds a little bit different. It's very it's, yeah. it's a lot clearer, isn't it? Um, yeah. Which is something got this, quite, which is something this, I quite admired. Yeah, and he's got this habit of looking at the mic, isn't he? As well as as if he's speaking to the mic. Yeah. Well, to the people as well, which I think is quite interesting. But with sort that, that's. Yeah. So, no, no, right. With that sort of circular spinning shot, it's like I say, I admire it in a way because it's um, it is like it's very interesting because it's like you say, it's very narcissistic. It's everything is he's the center of that universe, isn't he? He's everything's revolving around him rather than you know, it, it, rather than the the show being the the center. It's it's him, isn't it? He's he's the center of the universe. Everything's revolving around him. Um. But in that scene, sort of, it could be a little bit on the nose to say that it maybe represents a sort of slight descent into into depression or into madness. Yeah. Um, like, like literally everything spiraling out of control for him. Um, yeah. Mentally. Um, what I as get... A, a visual scene, metaphor. Yeah. You are sorry? Uh, yeah. Vis- yeah a, a visual metaphor, yeah. yeah. Sorry, what Mark, I get from that scene, though, is that he's, he's actually, he's talking to himself rather than um, listeners. You know when he goes on this big, this big triad of saying that he despises them all and that he's, you know, he's 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 probably forgotten that he's on a radio show maybe and he's he's more talking to himself because he's he has he has come to the he's finally admitted to himself that he is basically useless, isn't he? Like all these, um, there's a there's a quote I've got in front of me from. Um, an interview he, he gave with The Guardian and he said, that, you know, there's never really any dialogue on talk radio. It's about turning issues into cannon fodder for entertainment. Yeah. It's exactly how we've inherited this moron who is now our president. Um, and that's really um, a dangerous thing, isn't it? Because to give people a platform to um, to express views they hold that could be quite harmful it validates those views to the person who's expressing them and so not only is what he what he's doing on radio useless because he's not really aiding anything is he he's also helping people to become maybe more radicalized yeah so for me he's sort of he's finally probably realized that and he's he's finally admitting to the fact that he you know he really does probably hate himself as a person and yeah, even though throughout the film, I dislike him because he's an annoying little, you know, so and so. At this point, I start to feel sorry for him. He's because it, it's it seems like everything is spiraling out of control for him. Yeah, especially in, mean, his, in his mental health, maybe is taking a downturn. 
Yeah, I mean, it's at that point where he has that epiphany, doesn't he? Which I think is the film's final epiphany, really, the monologue that he delivers. He says, uh, I'm a hypocrite. I ask for sincerity and I lie. I yeah. deny the system and I, I embrace it. I want money and power and prestige. I want ratings and success. I don't give a damn about you or the world. That's the truth. And you've got, I think, in, in those callers, you've got uh, voices that people that are quite clearly very vulnerable. Um, you know that, that that needs some sort of help, and he mocks them. Um, he gives them abuse. Um, you know, you've got um, people that that are quite clearly unbalanced and need much more orchestrated, organised support. And he antagonises them and mm. probably provokes them into sort of making their quite unbalanced world view of the world more disturbed. Um, you know, and. and there's that point, as I say, I come back to that phrase in my notes, the cacophony of voices. And uh, Bogosian says, I mean, as he introduces Night Talk, I think it's the first introduction, he says, talk radio, it's the last neighbourhood in town. People don't just talk to each other anymore. And you've got this era in which communication is superficial or, or non-existent or very, very toxic. And... Um, you know, you have to think, and it's something that I come back to time and time again, because uh, my wife being a, a primary school teacher and very much uh, foreground in sort of getting kids to talk through the feelings about stuff at the moment, mm. um, especially in the current context of the pandemic. But we often have this conversation at home that she and I are of a similar perspective. And I, I say this as somebody that's sort of, you know, had, um, and I'm quite open about it, but um, somebody that's kind of, I've been on medication for depression and anxiety for different periods of my life. You know, we, we often say, does, does does talking actually help or does it sort of um, uh, escalate some of the problems that, that you might neglect or sideline? I mean, yeah. that's, a, that's a rhetorical question. And we live in a society and a culture in an era where there's this kind of un- unquestioned assumption that, that talking about problems helps. You know, I know my wife and I are of a similar perspective. You know, both of us dealing with this in our, our day jobs, and and uh, you know myself having sort of you know discussed this as part of my own sort of you know circumstances. Is that sometimes it doesn't. You know, sometimes talking about your problems simply allows them to escalate, perhaps. And I think you see that with with um, Champlain and, and some of the callers that call in that, that you know, talking about them in the wrong context, particularly here, but uh, talking about some of their theories or some of their, their ways of looking at the world is actually quite sort of harmful to them and, and, and to him, perhaps, as well. Yeah, um, but, especially uh, since mental health is something that's, you know, for a long a long while been something that's stigmatised, hasn't it? And, and exactly, yeah. Down on, especially when you look at... Um, you know the, the sort of the um, the mental institutions of, of America. You know, as as famed in one flew over the cuckoo's nest or or yeah. Metallica's um, Welcome Home from the Master of Puppets. Yeah. You know, um, it was a horrible system, and it's only sort of recently across the world that mental health issues are starting to start to be normalised, aren't they? And um, exactly, and yeah. I, I think talking about your problems, like you said, I think it's it's a very it's a very individual thing, right? My my wife is, you know, she's a very staunch supporter of, of, of therapy and counselling and she studied it at, at the university for a while, whereas me, I've sort of been in and out of counselling and therapy all my life and I just, I'm, when it comes to that thing, I'm not a talker, I, you know, I don't, yeah. 
I don't like it. And I think it's a very individual thing, isn't it? Exactly, but, uh, yeah. Which, so in the film, when people, you know, they, they do ring up and they're having issues and they're, you know, talking like that, you know, to be shot down um, and ridiculed and, and just plain put off, you know, just hanging. When he, like, it's like when Baldwin says, um, I, I can't I can't say his character's name, it's Alec Baldwin. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> when Baldwin says, you know, you, it's your job to hang up on people, you know, that's it's if you think about it, it's a disgusting thing to do, isn't it? When people are ringing up yeah. with problems, you know, like 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 when Kent rings up and he says about his girlfriend's not breathing, you know, the first time you, you can you can kind of see it's a bit of a hoax, especially the second time. But you you know, you, you have no idea if that's real or not, do you? I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. sort of that disdain of mental health issues, especially in America and especially back then. It's sort of rife in the film, isn't it? A bit with the way he talks to some of his callers. Yeah, I mean, Laura says to one point the the um, Leslie Hope character says, "All you have to do is is just be nice." And, and Champlain says, "So you're nice, Laura. It's what you're good at." Um, but he he does. There are a couple of instances where he does show good humour. There's a, a point where Debbie, a clearly lonely caller, and I think that's Anna Thompson. I think playing that character. I think. Um, uh, but it causes us to laugh, and we sort of see glimpses of a different side of Champlain there. Mm. Um, but then there's another point where, you know, towards the end of the film, she's <clears throat> got a caller that calls in. She says she's been listening to him for five years, and all he can do is mock her hair. He, he says she only listens. He? Yeah, he says she only listens to feel feel superior to the other losers who call in. And at one point, Champlain says, "You know, there's nothing more boring than people who love you," and that I think that's quite insightful to the character. And uh, th- there's another point as well where, which I think, you know, me watching it recently uh, for this um, struck me is is the pause after this when when um, there's a, a chap is it a chap that calls it he says, uh, you know, you, do you not love yourself, Barry? I think you're very it's lonely. A woman, Barry. It's a woman, isn't it? It's she has that very yeah. like silky voice, doesn't she? Like yeah, Miss she, from Cluedo. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine she'd sound. Yeah, but she says, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for you, Barry, because you don't know how to be loved. I'm getting here mixed up with a chap that phones in and says, I've got a beer and a can of beans. You know, come around <laughs> my house afterwards. Uh, but again, there's a, there's a similar sort of sense of people trying to connect with him, but, but Champlain um, doesn't like it. You know, and, and this sense of self-isolation, as we said earlier, that the studio's like a goldfish bowl. And at one point, he says, I'm really glad people like Kent are out there and I'm right here. But then later in the film, he invites Kent, it, the, the rocker, of course, into the studio. Yeah. And, and that sense of safety is eradicated, of course, at the end of the film when he's, he's shot by the character played by Rocket's Red Lair. And the safety is shattered before that, though, isn't it? When when Kent reaches into um, into his jacket and you think he's pulling out a gun, obviously, because everything goes exactly, into slow yeah. motion, but it's a camera, isn't it? And yeah. it's maybe a turning point for him because he realises, well, hold on, you know, people do ring up and tell me they know where I live and they threaten me and stuff, but look how close I've just come to being shot. Exactly, yeah. And you get a cutaway to Bogosian as he reacts, it's, it's kind of, as, as Kent pulls out this camera. And it's clear that Champlain thinks that that's a good as well, isn't it? It's yeah, not just yeah. the others. Um, but, I mean, some of those contemporary reviews suggested that those flashbacks to Champlain's earlier career, you know, where, where he was the, the um, like a tailor, isn't he? And, and, and then he, he meets the character played by Robert Trebor, Fisher, who invites him onto his, his show. They said that those uh, sequences feel like padding. And I think, Ada, you mentioned that earlier. Um, but those, I think, have, although the game, you could lose that perhaps, 
but I think that sequence where you see Champlain in his first appearance on the on on the Fisher's radio show is quite integral because it's mirrored in that later moment with Kent. Because of course Champlain goes on Fisher's show, he's provocative, he's antagonistic. And then later in the film, you see Kent go on Champlain's show, Night Talk, and he's provocative and antagonistic. And in, in the flashback, Fisher chews uh, Champlain out, but the studio head invites him to his, 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 his office and says, well, you've got your own show, kid. But how different, I think, is that? I think I was struck in that the, the way those sequences mirrored each other watching the film this time. How different is that from Champlain inviting Kent onto the show? And, and Champlain, like Fisher, seems disgusted at the younger mentees' outbursts. I think. I don't know if, if that struck out of you, AD. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I could see what you're saying. Um, it, it didn't at the time. And I can see that kind of, you know, what one being two. But, I, you know, um, that notion of. Champlain was was Ken um, in in the earlier earlier situation sort of thing, but I, I don't know. I just I, I, you know, it comes down to that. Um, I know it's like show don't tell sort of thing, but this would have been, this you know this would have been better off because the film is so dialogue heavy. Um, because the film is you know relies on its you know snappy punchy dialogue all the way through sort of thing and keeping with that. For me, pushing it back and showing. Um, those sequences from his past, it, it, it just it broke me out of you know what I actually wanted from the film, which is I, I was I, you know the, the more enjoyable sequences, you know we 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 know is how he got to where he is right now interesting, and especially the way they do it, or even yeah. important, yeah, even important. Yeah. Is it is it, is it interesting? Is it important? Would it be more imp- important sort of thing, or more interesting to see? Um, how he got this worldview, which nothing yeah. it doesn't seem to doesn't seem to do. I mean, is there is there any event in his life that led him to that? It's like he's already you know when he meets him in the you know in the uh, the, the the closed door uh, that that you know the, the DJ we gets in and he just he just comes on and he's instantly into this role of going hey you know what Look, we are holding hands we are doing this and it's like well okay well where has this come from where what what where where did this develop from because that. That maybe would have been more interesting, just rather than oh well, this is how he got the job. Yeah, um, and I think that's the misstep for me in those sequences, and and especially you know the um, the sequence in the home where Ellen comes home and finds him having that party with John McGinley, the two two girls sort of thing, two women, yeah. and obviously he's cheating on the sort of thing, and he's like, uh, and he, we know he's a we know he's a you know in the phone call with her, we get the fact of like something's gone on and she can't trust him. And, you know, we don't need to see all that. I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it felt like padding. I, I would have preferred when they just didn't have the material or they, they weren't confident in keeping the audience just for three nights in the radio, you know, station. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe, the, you know, maybe they fell down. into that typical, you know, filmic trope. We, we need to show where he came from and how he got the job and explain to people where he came from. And I was also put off by the terrible wig. If it is, <laughs> um, so you know, it's a Howard Stern, wasn't it? Yeah, if it, I, I mean, I could, I could go down that route if you really want me to, sort of thing. But as soon as that bit kicked back in, sort of thing, and I was like, you know, it's like, how do we make him younger? To give him a bigger wig, 
Uh, just give him, you know, he's got obviously tight curly hair. That's his hair. We'll just give him bigger curly hair. It's like, oh yeah, that, that's clearly what happens when people are younger. They just have bigger curly hair. I mean, I did. You know, so, um, Looks like you Slash know. if you worked in a tailor's. Yeah, if, 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 if I'm going. If I'm going out for the night sort of thing and I want to go to a nightclub or something like that and I want to look a bit younger, I just put a big curly-haired wig on. It works every time. Um, I do that, but I'm often confused with Diana Ross. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you see, it can work. It can work. But, uh, yeah, uh, I, I didn't like those sequences. I thought... And, and I get what you're saying about the parallels between, <laughs> between the, that beginning, you know, that where we got his thing, but I just didn't think it was... They could have done it better. There could have been more. There was a more interesting angle to take about how his character got where he did, rather than what we actually got. Yeah, I mean, I have a question for you though, and, and, and sort of in relation to that is is Ellen Green's character, um, Champlain's ex-wife, and when he's uh, introduced in his his first show, and she calls in as a anonymous caller, and he he sort of ridicules her, and she sort of squeals with glee, doesn't she? But then. In the later sequences, in the sort of present day of the diagesis, you might say, uh, she when she's worried that he's in her words going down in flames, she calls in the Cheryl Ann, doesn't she? And she expresses a love for Barry through her dissatisfaction with her, her current marriage. And Champlain's response is that he mocks her. He tells her that that age old story of the is it Aesop, Aesop's fables, I think. As a dog with a bone in its mouth, he was yeah. flexing the water below and he drops the bones back at the other dog, losing, of course, what it has, the bone, of course, in the pro- in the process. And he says, you blew it. Women like you are never happy. Your ex doesn't want you. He's out there having fun. And again, you know, there's this sense of these flashbacks being mirrored in the present. I don't know how you felt about that. Or about... Well, see, see, to me, it would have been a bit more interesting if, um, I, I get, yeah, again, but again, it's that, we have to explain it. And I think a, maybe a better way of doing that would have had Cheryl Ann calling in the first sequence with no explanation. Yeah. Um, and so in the, you know, in the opening bit where he's doing the thing, she just, she's just another caller. Um, and then he speaks to her on the phone and you might recognize her voice on the phone when he calls her. And then obviously she does the call from within the thing he turned and then you tie it all together that way, that she's still that way sort of thing. You know, she, she, she still has feelings for him, shown by the fact that she's still calling under this Cheryl Ann. You know, it could there could have been anything. Oh, it's Cheryl Ann again. We've you know we're you know one of our regular callers. Um, just as a throwaway line in that opening section would have to me sold that story just as well. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if that yeah. if that does that make sense? It would, yeah, Because yeah. then it would have relied on the audience actually piecing something together rather than look here's Cheryl Ann. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. that, that, it, it right. felt like it was. You know, Stone doesn't Stone. You know, Stone likes to hammer a point, um, but I can't help but feel that this point, these points, sort of thing, were were, were just you know, uh, trying. The audience for this film, sort of thing, doesn't seem like the people who would need that explained to them. Yeah, if that makes sense. It's maybe a little bit patronising, perhaps. Yes, yeah, that's what that's why I took from it. I mean, I, I can see why. But whether it works or not, or whether there were better ways to do it, is what is kind of the angle I'm sort of coming at it from. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not. I'm not a fan of. I'm not a huge fan of flashback personally. Um, uh, I'm reading a book at the minute called Silker's Journey, which is um, it, it follows a, a woman who, what well, a young girl who is who survives Auschwitz and is immediately arrested by the Soviets and put in a gulag. Yeah. Um, 15 years and and throughout the book there's flashbacks of something that happened in Auschwitz that relates 
very closely to something that's happening to her in the gulag and yeah and i mean yeah all right it's, it's hammered it's hammering the point home that she's having you know a terrible time of it and and that these things are just constantly happening to her but i'd much rather that the writer or in, in this case you know stones i'd much rather him it's like it's, it's like it's like i said i want to know why he's he is the character he is um yeah if, I think maybe the audience should be left to figure out, you know, sort of um, how he's got to where he is. But I want to be shown maybe why he he is how he is. Yeah, yeah. I'm just not a fan of flashbacks. I find them a bit clunky and exposition-ish. And um, especially in this film, to be honest, because I didn't like the way they were presented, you know, sort of all soft focus and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a good point. I, yeah. I really, I really disliked that because it, it felt really out of tone for the film. It made it seem a bit more, I don't know, dare I say, chick flickish to me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But um, and and I also didn't like, frankly, I'm getting a bit negative now. I also didn't like the whole the fact that um, his his ex wife rung in the second time. You know, when he is going down in flames. Yeah. Um, I like the fact that she noticed it and she rung in to sort of help him. But I also, I just don't. I can't get on with the fact that she is suddenly there expressing her love for him and how she hates her, well, she doesn't want to be with her husband and, and she wants to be with him. Because for me, personally, that came out of nowhere. You know, um, Obviously, there's still a connection between them because she's come all the way to Dallas for him. But I don't know, it just it's, it felt like it just exploded onto, into the film and I just, I, I, could have, I just could have done without it, frankly. Yeah. 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 See, that's where I said if if she'd have been referred to as a repeat caller earlier in the first sequence, just as a, mm. then that that would have maybe, you know, oh okay, she is keeping calling in. She is, she it's just contact. she's still yeah that sort of thing. No, I don't know. Um, it's if you think, I mean, that the, a sort of similar type of film sort of thing, close close contact, lots of things. Obviously, is um, the th- film that I would liken this to would be uh, Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Um, oh yes, that's the Baldwin um, connection. It is the Baldwin connection, yeah. Sort of thing. But Baldwin's, <laughs> but Baldwin's amazing in that sort of thing. You know, it's incredible yes. sort of thing. But um, and that doesn't, at least in my recollection of it, correct me wrong, sort of thing. But that doesn't feel the need to explain who these characters are, where they come from, and how they got to where they were. Yes, um, yeah. It's all in the moment, and I think yeah. this film would have done better to have, to have done that. I, I, maybe I'm, I'm being too negative because, like I said, two-thirds of it are great. Two-thirds of it are pure Oliver Stone, and I love it. You know, Oliver Stone tight, you know, close in that sort of, like that JFK around the thingy where you're getting that cutaways to when um, the Lee Harvey Oswald's photo is being doctored. Yeah. And they're all that long talk sort of thing where we're, we're talking about Lee Harvey Oswald and his history in Russia and all sort of thing. It's that similar sort of style of, you know, direction, you know, single location, moving camera, tight, tight on people, lots of information being conveyed. And that's all great, you know, um, but it just it, it loses its it loses its intensity, which is kind of what I wanted from this film, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I definitely agree. Maybe. It sort of softens the whole film a little bit, doesn't it? It's a, it's a toilet break moment for me. <laughs> That's a long toilet I mean, break. I well, I only go to the toilet <laughs> once a week for half an hour. <laughs> I mean, you talk about show don't tell, but there is there is a good example example of that in the film. I think you know when um, uh, there's that uh, Chet's call and, and um, he calls into the show and he suggests that 
Champlain should quote tell the truth about the people behind the shows, the people who pay the bills. And Champlain responds by telling him that story about the visit to Dachau and uh, finding that star of David um, yeah. taking it home. And he says it's with him in the studio. He's holding it right he's now. Holding it right but, now, but he's not, is he? He's... Yeah, he's, he's holding a, a mug of coffee, and you can sort of see. I mean, I think as you. Uh, Mark, you're doing your PGC at the moment. Eddie and I have many, many, many years of education teaching under our belts. Um, and, and sometimes you have to sort of provoke students to, to sort of lead them down the right path. And I think that's what I relate to in Champlain, that, you know, that uh, although sometimes the path it leads his callers down isn't the right path, but, the, you know, the sense that you sometimes you have to, have to sort of uh, not manipulate reality, but certainly... Um, present it in a slightly different way to sort of cause students to, to question their ideology. And I think there's some parallels there between working in, in education and, and, and sort of that, that, that talk radio style job that Champlain has. Aidy, would you agree? Or? Um, well, there's, now there's a question, isn't there? <laughs> I wasn't like, I kind of, you caught me off guard there. So I think I was a little Sorry. Small. Um, that's all right. Uh, do, would I, uh, Yes, there there is. You, you kind of do. I mean, you know, a good he lecturer sort of thing will be always be trying to poke his students to think. Yes. Um, um, that's one of the things I, you know, I, I've sort of come to learn. You you, you don't you you trying to poke them into a certain way of looking at stuff and and to sort of question stuff and be critical of things. Excellent. And sometimes that sometimes that can mean taking a view that you don't always hold um you know to be a bit of an agent provocateur to be a devil's advocate um and that is something certainly you you get better at and you learn and you learn to sort of play that role a little bit i'm not going to say i'm a shock jock in the uh, in the classroom um <laughs> but um but certainly there is there are there are times especially when you're discussing certain things and you know if the discussion's maybe not going in the direction or people are not going you've got to sort of throw something out there that's a bit like a wake-up call like you know what, what about this in this game do you think that you know from obviously my point of view you know do we think this and i know that i know my students and i know there are certain buttons to press um um you know when, when i want to sort of get a reaction or get get something going again um and that there is something in that yeah i think i think that's a that's a good point and, and you do you just you just learn it don't you, you just become you could become better at it um how, how yeah. to how to sort of you know you know you know we you know and I, I don't know is that maybe that's the thing with champlain sort of thing the difference between him as a thing you know maybe champlain just needed a powerpoint behind him sort of thing so he knew where his, his uh <laughs> his uh his uh, lessons were going to go or his talk shows were going to go sort of thing. So, um, you know, we have a bit of that like you know, luxury, I guess. Um, but yeah, there's, there's certainly elements to that. Yeah. I would say you, you've got all this fun to come, Mark. I yeah. can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you, your experiences, you know, do you think, uh, do you, do you sort of relate to that? Well, on the PGC course, there was, um, there's a, there was a lesson that we had, um, in which we were, split into two halves of the group um, and we had to have a debate with each other. This is back in the old days where we're actually, you know, in the university. Yeah. In the before time. In the before time. Before, yeah. Be, I um, should contextualise this with some sort of explanation that everything is being delivered online at the moment because of the pandemic. And well, so Ray, you, actually, you say that, but actually my course is allowed to go in and, and learn at, at, at the centre. Yeah, PGC, PGC, yeah. Are they? Yeah. Yeah, 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 but yeah. I, but the the students I teach, I have to teach online. But I'm allowed to go oh, in. Right. And, uh, 
in person somehow. I don't know why, but no comment. I, I digest. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, the, and we we were given we were split into two halves, and we were given one half of a debate. Um, my half was um, that all children and students should be educated to the best of their ability, yeah. um, no matter what. The other half was that students who are more likely—it's hard to—it's hard to word—but basically, students that are more likely and come from a better social background and are more likely to achieve should receive the better education, while students who are of a, a, a worse off social background and aren't likely to achieve should just be sort of given what they get. Can I interject and say how politically loaded is that that sort of premise? But anyway, let's, uh, let's I, move on. I, well. It it was we were sent off for a while to do some research and then we came back and basically I exploded. Um, yeah, I, I said that I I don't understand why we should have to research that argument. It's because it's it's wrong and it's you know. Yeah. It's, but anyway, that's that's a different story. But uh, but yeah. then you know our tutor came back and said, well you know as a teacher, you are going to have to look at different ways of thinking and 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 potentially upsetting people. Valid point. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and and it's like you said, you've it's like I said, you've got to sort of poke people into thinking. Yeah, I've I've already, I mean, I've only been on a placement since September, and I've already had um, a situation where I've <laughs> annoyed the students because I gave them a task in which they had to rewrite the intro to an Edgar Allan Poe story. Yeah, none, none of them liked me for it, <laughs> but I was just trying to get them to think about language. But there's, yeah, you shouldn't shy away from potentially annoying students i don't think yeah as no, long as I, annoying them into learning yeah, I th- well i think that's the job description isn't it oh it should it be <laughs> people into learning that's why i'm I so mean, good at it you know i don't want to get too too much of a selling bar but i think when you were i say to this to the wife very often and, and uh, like i say she works in the primary school and uh, we both have situations where students disclose things to us that are very um upsetting and i think you know when you went to when you went to into teaching that's the last thing you expect is some of the disclosures that i've had you've probably had the same ad you might have had the same mac um and and things that really shock you to the core Mm. of your humanity you know and um and a bit like and, and what i relate to in this film i think is is champlain when these some of these characters articulate things that you can see that Bogosian um, in his performance is shocked. He's, he's shocked into silence. He, he doesn't know how to respond. And without giving too much details of some of the things that that have been disclosed to me in the past, that uh, I find that very very relatable. I think. Well, it's like um, the uh, the sequence where the guy brings up who you know says he's going to rape someone again. I don't want to go into too much details, but similar situation. I have been um, had disclosures of a similar level, and it's probably the last thing that you think when you, you go into teaching. Much as the last thing that you think you're going to be uh, is going to be disclosed to you when you go into working in radio, for example. How do you handle that? Silence is shock, utter sort of. Uh, withdrawal of the the inhumanity that that people can present 
uh, or that can be at the core of people's self. Um, and, you know, I think that's something that I, I relate to very much in, in, in um, Pagosian's performance, I think, as, 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 uh, as Champlain, that I struggle to see how someone like uh, maybe Dustin Hoffman might articulate that. Um, anyway, that's, that's gone. That's gone down the very blue path. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. I've got. I've, I don't have anything wrong with Bogosian's performance in this film. I, I think he's. I think he's excellent. I think he's really good. Um, but it's just that middle third. That's, that's yeah, my only yeah. problem. I think yeah. he, you know. I, I just wanted more of him at the at the mic. I mean, the other thing that I've got in my notes that we've not really talked about yet is that the, the uh, you know, when the threats start to pile up, the, the voices of the people that are making the threats are indistinguishable. You've got the neo-Nazis, the, you've got the, the grudges and so on and so forth. And there's that moment as well that, that, again, sort of refers back, and I don't want to get into too much detail about personal circumstances, but things that I've had disclosed to me working in education, where that, that guy, he provokes that caller who admits to hitting his small child with a belt, and, and that man says, I know where you live, I know what you look like. And at that point, we've realised that the threats don't just come from the neo-Nazis, but certainly from um, the other callers that call in with various... Just general folk. Exactly, yeah, yeah. With, with, that, was, with uh, Michael, that was Michael Wincott again, wasn't it? I think it was Wincott, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I think it was. So, like I say, the fact that the different callers call in with the same voices, the same actors, uh, deliberately confuses the matter and, and sort of causes them to, to overlap. Um, oh, do you think that was um, a deliberate, or do you think that was just they couldn't get many more actors? Think it was to keep the budget down, or do you think it was a deliberate production technique to actually cause confusion in the viewer? I think I think it's a, a deliberate choice to cause confusion in the viewer because I, th- I oh, think, okay. as I understand, that was deliberate in the stage show to cause confusion that these different voices call in. The, the Alan Berg references weren't in the stage show, but uh, but certainly the overlap of voices were there. I think, as I understand it, anyway. So. Um, uh, and, and, and there's that, that that moment as well to go back to what we said about Champlain and, and this ranting about um, uh, about uh, his ego. My show, I'll put who I want on my show. If I want to put Charlie Manson on my show, I'll put him on my show. And and, and Dan says to to him, "What you are, Barry, is a fucking suit salesman with a big mouth, big mouth." Which again, I think is working education. It's probably something that we can all relate to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't but, think I would ever say that to one of my students, though. No, no, we've had it said to us. Oh right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Mark, you know, you know, if you if you carry on on on, on the tra- trajectory you're on, you know, you, you'll get there eventually. Um, I'm just emailing my tutor asking if I can change to like a. Uh, you know, <laughs> but um, I mean, the the film ends with that 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 uh, moment. It's. Um, Towards the end, Barry says to, "Is it to Dan?" He says, "I'll be back tomorrow." And Dan says, uh, "You know, sort of expresses, you know, we're, we're, oh no." Barry says, "Maybe," and, and Dan says, "Well, we're, we're actually going to go," sort of thing. And and Barry talks to Stu afterwards, and he says, uh, "Why am I doing it?" And, and Stu says, "I don't know, Barry. If you if you can't stand the house, don't climb don't climb mountains, man." Which is a great piece of sort of hippie esque philosophy, I think. But uh, yeah. but uh, but certainly it kind of points to what Champlain's doing is is sort of 
I think, again, this is another thing that I talk about in education a lot, and I don't get sidelined too much by it, but this notion of a, of a, of a vocation. And we talk about that, you know, vocational education as being about sort of job-related learning. But vocation is a calling, isn't it, in the true sense? And it's, it's something that you do regardless of whether you are sort of re rewarded for it, paid for it or whatever. Um, and... I think you get this sense that Champlain, even though he doesn't quite understand what it is that he, what his function is, that he does it because it's a, a voca vocation like like the priesthood, or you know some sort of calling. I think that 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 he's um, engineered into. Um, and and you quoted that great line earlier, Ad, uh, where uh, Champlain talks about you know this this marvelous technology that's uh, at disposable disposable sorry. Instead of reaching out up to new heights, we're going to see how far down we could go, how, how deep into the muck we can immerse ourselves. You're pathetic. I despise each and every one of you. You have nothing, no brains, no power, no future, no hope, no God. The only thing you believe in is me, the media, in, a, in, in other words. And then there's that moment, and this is how the, the play ends. Um, there's that moment with 60 seconds of, of dead air silence on the mic. And... and uh, Barry breaks it by saying, I guess we're stuck with each other, I think, which is, is quite powerful, quite meaningful. Um, yeah. And then over the opening credits, we've got Telephone and Rubber Band by the Penguin Cafe Orchestra, which mentally, and I know it's wrong, but I always struggle to separate it from that Space Hog track in the meantime, in the, in the <laughs> mid-90s. Um, which was used over the end credits, and I don't know, AD, you might have seen this, Mark, you might be, you, know, you whippersnapper, you might be too young to have seen this. <laughs> so, AD, uh, can you remember Michael Almereda's Nadja, the vampire film with the, some of the sequences shot in pixel vision? The open, the closing credits of that used a, a lot of Portishead on the soundtrack, but the closing okay. credits of that used the Space Hog track. I don't remember that now. That's <laughs> I'm sorry, that's beyond me as well. I'll leave but, that one just to you, Paul. But <laughs> when, I, when I watch the end of Talk Radio, the closing, the closing credits, I think of the uh, Almereda film, Nadja, with the, the Space Hog track over the, the end of it. Um, I don't know. I, mean, I, that's, was, that's, disappointed. I so, was disappointed. They were at the end of a Frasier series where you get the headshots of all the actors who have called in. I wanted oh, that. Yes, yeah. Yeah, thanks for calling. And, and there's all these different pictures of people. I wanted that. That 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 had tied it up in a neat bow for me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I I like the, I like that you mentioned Fraser earlier. It was sort of a, as a bit of a sidebar, but Fraser has a similar thing with the voices, doesn't it? The the, the actors that call in as the people seeking um, sort of guidance from mm. Fraser. And um, you know, I, I do look at Fraser. Um, which I, I'm a big, I'm not a big fan, I have to say, for American sitcoms generally. Um, but Frasier, um, I do find quite um, consistently fascinating. Um, and I, I, I did watch that on on television from um, the first year, was it ninety one, ninety two, something like that, till the last season. I mean, there's another so, link to a, another decent um, American sitcom that was good. For quite a while as well, with with McGinley, isn't there, with Scrubs. Um, oh, well, of course, yeah. 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 I know it's not this, I'm just, just as a sidebar there, yeah, but you know, I do like Scrubs. Yeah, yeah. But um, 
you know, um, I think uh, the, the, the in fact, McGinley was in, he was in an episode of Frasier actually. Thinking about it, he was, yeah, yeah. McGinley's in everything. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, oh, it's the, it's the uh, guy in the helicopter in Seven. He just pops up all over the place. Yeah. That's true. With his, little, with his little curly head of hair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Point less so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, is it, but, is yeah. it worth just as a, I know you mentioned this at the beginning, sort of thing, but. Um, the film, apart from Glen Gary, Glen Ross, and uh, just to sort of say, um, the the ending rant or the ending talk sort of thing, um, is it? Do you think it's um, purposeful, or you know, is it obviously riffing off uh, Network? Um, well, you know, I'm not going to take. We're not going to take it anymore. That whole the big thing at the end of that. Do you think there's a? Is that purposeful, or do you think it's uh, not? Or, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think even if it's riffing on network, it's it's still purposeful, you know, in the sense of commenting on the the media landscape. Um, I mean, uh, as I said earlier, um, there was uh, before Stone was attached to direct direct the film. There was um, Lumet was attached, um, and I think it was Lumet that suggested that um, Hoffman should play Champlain. Um, Really. And, and and you can come in to see that I think, like I said, there's a, a there's a thread that runs from this or from network to this. I think um, in terms of uh, and, and and a linkage that you can make between Champlain and Peter Finch's character in network. I think um, and I think that's that's kind of very astute. Um, in the nineties, you get that extended slightly with. Um, Stone's um, examination of particularly the uh, Robert Downey Jr. character in uh, Natural Born Killers. Yes, yeah, yeah. And um, later on, you've got, um, you might have seen this AD, it's been forgotten about since it came out, but Series 7, The Contenders, which was a, sort of a, quite a dark look at the uh, reality TV phenomenon. Yeah, that does ring a bell. Yeah, yeah, and um, <clears throat> you know, um, also you've got um, another example, and 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 Mark, um, you might be too young to remember this, but uh, the the um, the host um, on the film adaptation of the Running Man. Do you remember that? Have you seen that? Well, I don't man. want anything to do with running. Uh, I don't like exercise. <laughs> The Schwarzenegger film, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, um, which is played by um, oh, forgive me, sorry, I'm not a he's a game, a, game show host, wasn't he? He is, yeah, it was game a, show host. yeah the it's game a, show host, yeah, yeah, I've forgotten his oh, name. His name. Um, oh, this makes a good oh, podcast. Uh, <laughs> Richard, Richard, Richard Dawson, yeah, yeah, yeah. who do you it love? Was, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, if you've not seen that, Mark, watch it. Uh, do you know what? I, I, my oh. daughter is. <laughs> she's fourteen years old now, and I, I sort of, I made a watch, <laughs> as, as a, you know, as a, as a sort of a, there was a reward attached to it. The Running Man. She, she loves that film. She absolutely loves that film, and even she can see the parallels between that and, and sort of today's sort of TV landscape. Um, but it's, 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 you oh, know, yeah. I don't. It's a it's a Schwarzenegger movie, but it's an incredible, incredible film. I think, in my opinion, you know, um, 
But anyway, I'll leave it at that. But it's um, not worth losing your head over, let's put it that way. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, does anybody have any comments they want to wrap up with? or? Uh, Mark, do you want to go? Um, nothing in particular. I mean, when I was, I've only watched it really the once. Um, but there's there's a lot lot of sort of new ideas and analysis analyses that you guys have brought up, which I, obviously I can see in the film. And my my personal take away from it was that it was sort of a scathing indictment of of America really and and how no matter what that that sort of anti-semitism and and that racism will always appear and rear its ugly head uh, no matter how hard you try and stamp it out and unfortunately it's 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 become prophetic in a way hasn't it um that it, it, it's still rife today especially with radio hosts like you know Rush Limbaugh who's who's also very political and, and provocative and and yeah, it's, I found it not upsetting, but you know, whenever you see films like this where people are abused and and um, yeah, uh, for 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 their for their religious beliefs or for their race or for their color, it's just um, it's just a sad reminder of the world we we tend to populate, unfortunately. But um, yeah. saying that, I did enjoy it. You know, it's it, I enjoyed. Um, watching Bogosian at the mic I thought he, he acted it very well um especially you know I said earlier especially like the touches of when he was at the mic his voice being clearer I thought that was a nice little touch um um but yeah that was my lasting impression it's you know unfortunately it's just it seems that that's the way that the world will always behave and always seem to be because even here we are yeah. what 20 years later and it's still pretty much the same isn't it yeah, especially considering it's in the city where you know JFK was was shot, and what a what a nice young man he was. Yeah, it's thirty years, isn't it? You know. Yeah, yeah. It's how, time, how time flies. Yeah. Ad. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, I, I a slightly different take. I, I can see what what Mike's saying there, something. But for for me, that what I took away was that that quote what I said about the use of technology to um you know how you know the comment of you know if you put this great technology in the hands of people sort of thing they'll just usurp it for for you know nefarious horrible ends um and like I, when i was sat here what such so they're watching it with a partner sort of thing and he's doing that doing that speech and he says that line i was like good lord he, you could put that now sort of thing and he's just talking about twitter yeah. he's just talking about instagram he's talking about snapchat or tiktok yeah. or anything like that sort of thing where so relevant um, yeah, absolutely. You know, Facebook and everything we've had over the past few years, um, you know, with, you know, with Cambridge Analytica and all that kind of use of technology to actually drive political viewpoints and everything like that. And, you know, instead of using it to, you know, open our minds and I don't wish to sound all hippie-ish or anything like that, but, you know, to, you know, to better humanity, we've just used it to it's just become another form of control and it's it's the next yeah. step along, you know, religion, media, now it's the internet. It's just another form of control. People are so yeah. obsessed with what other people are saying online sort of thing that they forgot yeah. actually, you know, there's a, you know, 
what's going on really in the world. And I don't want to go down that route sort of thing, but, you know, I'll start sounding like a conspiracy theorist and what have you sort of thing, but hey-ho. Um, and I think that was the thing that I took away from this. But it was ultimately the notion that the vacuity of people's, you know, opinions and stuff and, you know, there's that, you know, everybody's got an opinion, everyone's got a right to talk and everyone's like, yeah, 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 fine enough sort of thing. But you really, should they? Because <laughs> most, yeah. most people don't have anything to say. Uh, yeah, which is ironic, sort of thing. Opinions, you allow them yeah. to speak it. Yeah, which is ironic, seeing as we you know we're, we're we're voicing our opinions on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, one could say, yeah. what, what what's our right to actually do this podcast? It's like, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. But it's um, you know, I think that's you know, you put that power into everybody's hands, sort of thing, and what you end up with, sort of thing, is just a you know, a wall of noise, really. And I think that's what I took away from this film, sort of thing, and that's what ultimately um, spoke to me the most um, about it. Yeah. It's unbelievable the power that that anonymous just sort of online hatred can have, isn't it? Like, for instance, yeah, yeah. if you look at the the recent Capitol riots in America, um, yes. the other day I read an art, well, I, I saw a headline: someone who's being formally charged in Scotland over an offensive tweet. You know yeah. I mean, it's just. I mean, for, at first I thought that's ridiculous, but then when I read what he'd put, you know, I thought actually, no, that is horrible. Um, but it's it's yeah, it's just amazing what people will do when when they haven't got a face, if you know what I mean. They yeah. just sat behind a keyboard, they can say what they want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's you know history of like people being docked or people being swatted and all that kind of stuff, and it's a uh, you know what can you say? It's supposed to be a good thing, but it turns out that people can't be trusted to some degree. I think maybe I don't know. Yeah. Who am I? Who am I on my soapbox to say that? With seven billion people in the world, there's always going to be a difference of opinion somewhere, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd like to end it on that that great quote from is it the Deadpool or Southern Impact? Opinions like ourselves, everybody's got one. Everyone's um, got. One. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it'd be nice to end end this with a, a that, that sort of homage to Champlain. He ends that show with sixty seconds of da-da and says, <laughs> "I guess was." I guess we're stuck with each other, but, you know. Well, I'm, I'm honouring it in my own way, and I'm currently stood with my laptop turning in a circle. <laughs> <laughs> and I think with that, we'll, we'll, with that image, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll say goodbye. <laughs> yeah, thank you All very right. much. Thank Brilliant. you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. This country is in deep trouble, people. This country is rotten to the core, and somebody better do something about it. I want you to take your hand out of that bowl of Fritos, throw away your National Enquirer, and pick up the phone. Go ahead, pick it up, hold it up to your face, and dial 555-T-A-L-K. Open your mouth and tell me what we're going to do about the mess this country's in. Talk radio. It's the last neighborhood in town. People just don't talk to each other anymore. Let's go to the first caller. Uh, Night Talk, Agnes, yeah. I love Lucy. Now, why don't they make more of those shows are ancient, Agnes. Lucille Ball must be at least 105 years old. The rest of the cast is dead. <laughs> Barry Metroid is going to be picking up the show starting Monday night, link it to a national theme. We have a very special guest with us. Kent is the classic American youth, energetic and resourceful, spoiled, perverse, and disturbed. Would you say that's an accurate description, Kent? Big bows, Barry, you should ask me if you want to have a guest on the show. Why? Because I'm the boss, Barry, that's why. All you have to do is just be nice, okay? Easy, Barry.
there, you're part of the problem, you see. I don't care what you think. No one does. He's going down in flames, Dan. So what? You get the package I sent down to the station. See, if I were you, I'd have my pretty assistant give the police a call. Take the bomb squad about ten minutes to get down Bomb squad? Why, why, why should I call the bomb squad? Tell me something. I, I, I'm curious. How do you dial a phone with a straitjacket on? <laughs>